attention horror fans, this episode may contain <laughs> plot spoilers for Stanley Kubrick's The Shining and Rob Reiner's Misery. Of course, if you have not seen either of those films, you should first watch those films before you do anything else, including listening to this podcast. Hey, this is Matt Greenberg, screenwriter of 1408. You are listening to Horror Movie Podcast, where we are dead serious about horror movies. Horror Movie Podcast, where we're dead serious about horror movies. We have a bi-weekly show that's released every other Friday, and this is episode 138, and it is the first part of a two-part themed episode titled Winter with the King, which is a wintry walk into the macabre wonderland of the snowbound horror films of Stephen King. And for this installment of Winter with the King, we'll bring you feature reviews, of Stanley Kubrick's The Shining from 1980 and Rob Reiner's Misery from 1990. And later on, in our eventual part two for this little series, we'll be reviewing the TV miniseries Storm of the Century from 1999 and Lawrence Kasdan's Dreamcatcher from 2003. And on Horror Movie Podcast, you'll hear in-depth horror movie reviews, especially for new releases, with ratings and recommendations to help you decide whether you should buy, rent, or avoid these movies. And I am your host, Jay of the Dead, podcasting from Salt Lake City. And my co-hosts tonight are... Dave, Dr. Shockbacker from just outside Philadelphia, PA. And Wolfman, Josh, and Jay. He did get out of the cock a car! <laughs> I can't, I can't handle that stuff right now. I'm hopped up on NyQuil, so um, <laughs> that's, that's going to affect me differently. So uh, before we bring in our special guest, which I'm very excited about tonight, uh, Wolfman Josh, this episode comes in part as a payment for something. Is that correct? Yeah, I did want to give a shout out to Peter Strain, who he was very kind to design the HMP Icon t-shirt for us. And we have several listener designed t-shirts on at teespring.com slash stores slash horror movie cast. But Peter said, Hey, you know what? I'm happy to do this, but could you do me a favor in return? Could you guys review the shining? I really want to hear a review of the shining. And so, yeah, this show, I guess this episode is in some ways dedicated to Peter for that. And, and to our other listener t-shirt designers out there, armored foe and Sharon, actually, if you guys want to recommend something for us to review, we'll do it. Mm -hmm. I love that. That's great news. Well, at this point, it's time to bring in our special guest. <laughs> I'm very excited about this. He is the esteemed host of the brand new Movie Podcast Network show. It is called Movie Moments Podcast, as well as a co-host on the Sci-Fi Podcast. We welcome back Kill Bill Kill, a.k.a. William Rowan Jr., a.k.a. Rowan the Destroyer, right? That's correct. <laughs> Hello, gentlemen. <laughs> Whoa. Yeah, so yeah, there's a lot of AKAs there, right? <laughs> That's right. There's more. Yeah, there's more. We, we were William just... Solo Jr., William Yolo Jr. Mm -hmm. 
You know, at some point, I think I need to rein this in, but... um. <laughs> Right. I'll go by William tonight if that's okay. William? Okay. I'm, I'm used to calling you that. Well, it, it is very exciting that you have the brand new Movie Moments podcast, and I just listened to your episode two today on The Burbs uh, with your guest in that episode. It was actually royalty. This is something that I did not know, and I won't go into it here because I don't want to spoil it. I hope they will go listen to that episode so they can hear how Josh is actually royalty i did not know this <laughs> yes it was You're misinterpreting inter- it but yes <laughs> no that's how it works when introduced to joshua legary for the first time it's a royal experience you he's introduced like trumpets go off in the background <laughs> like the royal trumpets and he walks in and that's how my that was my first memory of meeting josh in eighth grade there's a lot of fake news going on in that episode and um <laughs> <laughs> you've um, touched on you've touched on some of it but there's more it's amazing but actually uh, the first time i met josh was uh during um happy death day i wouldn't mind a few trumpets going off <laughs> yeah there were it was more like uh, exit the building trumpets right as a warning <laughs> oh my goodness um, no, but I'm excited actually to be on with you guys because yes, Jay, you were the first uh, on the first episode, which was Eternal Sunshine on Spotless Mind, and then Josh was on the second episode, which is The Burbs, and I'm super excited to have Dave on um, as soon as it works out with his schedules. Absolutely, I would love to be on. And what's awesome is you know basically it's a short form podcast where we just pick one movie. And then we watch it separately and we pick one moment from that movie that we want to talk about. It could be for any reason, whether it's just something that uh, stood out to us when we saw it or it's important to us for whatever reason. And we just talk about that one movie. And so far, it's going really well. I've had a blast. There's a few other episodes that are going to be up by the time you hear this, which is 28 Days Later, also with Jay. Yes. Um, and The Thing, John Carpenter's The Thing with Josh. So it's kind of a double right. feature with awesome. them. Yeah. So I'm assuming the listeners of this podcast, I'm just taking a wild guess. I'm not sure because, you know, I'm not on all that often here, but I think they might like some of those movies. At least The Thing and 28 Days Later, I, I think are up uh, the alley here. <laughs> totally. Totally. Yeah, it's honestly one of my favorite shows. I, I love the concept for it. And as William said, it is short form. And what's cool about it to me is how you have this subjective experience with a moment in the film. And, you know, on the two that I did with you, I felt like we got pretty real. So I, I love that kind of thing because you get to know, you know, you get to know the hosts a little bit better and why they have such a powerful subjective experience and so maybe william do you permit the listeners to share their movie moment in your comments from that particular film yeah so uh, it's a new thing that i i didn't really announce the first episode but it's definitely going to be part of the show where i absolutely would be so excited to hear what everyone has chosen for their moment so you know if they have something that stood out to them for whatever reason i would like to hear not only the moment but why and i think that why is obviously implied but in case you know that you were debating whether to explain it or not i would love to hear um i think it's actually more interesting to hear why that moment is chosen for you why it means something to you you know mm-hmm. yeah so that's what i think it's great because we have all these shows that are um, you know we that uh, center on genre and we're, we're doing full reviews of movies it's great to have one that just looks at these moments you know mm-hmm. uh breaks it down even further i think that's great yeah, yeah. thanks dave 
I agree. And the episodes that I did, one of them at least, got super raw. So I think listeners will be interested in it's a different vibe. It's a very, as Jake kind of alluded to, it has kind of this personal, <laughs> quirky yeah. element to it that I think is obviously what William excels at is that kind of thing. So mm-hmm. I, agree. I guess, yeah, the way I describe it is I am very, I don't know if it's obsessed, but I, I'm very fascinated with what makes me not only tick i guess but also why do i feel the way i feel or even better why do i have an emotional reaction um often maybe a a dramatic or overreaction whether it's to other humans or other situations in my life or especially when i'm watching movies and watching projecting on what i'm i'm seeing and i i guess i feel less anxiety or insecure when i get to know other people and know that they have you know, even if we don't have the same experiences necessarily, we're having, you know, very human experiences that are, Mm-mm. you know, that kind of make up who we are. And it, I it, maybe it's a type of therapy, but it, that's not really like the main focus of the show. But I think it's inherent when you say to somebody, why did you choose that moment? And often it's for a reason that matters. And not always. Even I chose a moment that I just thought I laughed so hard I almost threw up. And so I just chose that <laughs> moment for that reason. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so it's kind of yeah it is broad and it depends on what people bring and what they are you know uh, wanting to talk about or share you know well two last comments that i have on it number one i think that the horror fans might appreciate it because even though you don't always it's not always a horror film that you're talking about although there are some i think at least for me as a horror fan one reason that i i, I love the horror cinema and the horror genre is how how it does like tap into some deeply rooted emotional connection that I have with the film and, and in my life and in my past and one way or another. And I think horror affects a lot of people that way. And I think it's cool about your show, William, because you kind of explore that with a lot of people. And as you said, not every time, but it seems like a lot of times. And I'm betting that as this show progresses, there's going to be some serious raw moments on there. So I just would like to invite the Horror Movie Podcast community, because I know we have um, a really enthusiastic and dedicated, committed audience. I challenge you and ask as a personal favor, check out moviemomentspodcast.com. Listen to at least one episode, and I predict that you will be hooked. I love, I love this podcast, William, and thank you for bringing it to the network. Well, thanks for letting me be able to share that, and also super excited to talk about what we're going to talk about today, which is like in my opinion, spoiler alert, one of the best horror movies ever made. So this is just a win-win across the board. That's right. All right. Anything else, Josh and Dave, that you wanted to uh, talk about here at the top before we uh, get into our feature reviews? I got Yeah, real quick. I have been um, sort of binge watching some um, 2017 movies. I know um, over on uh, Movie Podcast Weekly, you guys did your top 10 already for the year. Well, I did. A, a, obviously, we had our, our top 10 horror films. But when it comes to an overall top 10, I don't actually post mine until Oscar weekend. And I usually have to take January and February to sort of binge watch as many of that previous year's movies as I can. Um, Well, just so everybody knows, I am keeping track of the movies that I'm watching. Finally on Letterboxd, I joined it and then ignored it for about six months. Uh, But I do have a list going over there of the movies I'm watching from 2017 as I'm watching them. So if anybody sort of wants to see what what uh, could possibly constitute my top 10 list, and I think this year I'm going to do it a little different. Normally I'll combine horror and I'll just combine all movies into one top 10. 
this time I think I am going to separate it out to for horror and um, then for everything else. I guess it's, um, that's how we're kind of doing it uh, over here on the show. But if you <laughs> want to check it out, my letterboxed ID. Oh, DocShock HMP. Oh, good. Okay. Actually, it actually makes sense. Um, so if you yes. want to follow it over there, I've put a list together and it's just um, 2017 movies I've watched. So, and I'm going to be updating that pretty much, you know, as I watch them, I'll just keep that one updated. Just a heads up. I'll just tell you this. I caught hell on Movie Podcast Weekly from some listeners who were very upset that I extracted the horror picks from my top 10 list so we could preserve it as a surprise over here. And so they wanted to see how the horror picks fared blended in with that. So I just thought I'd put that out there to you because otherwise you might catch hell as well. I have, um, (laughs) if you go over to, to my blog, I have a list there where I have a top 10 list for every year from 1931 all the way up to 2016. And I've done that then. So you're just going to have to deal with it for 2017. <laughs> okay. Okay. I'll also add one note. You're not going to be thrilled about this, Dave, but there actually is a typo in your letterbox name. So oh, is it, there? Doesn't, it doesn't say Doc Shock HMP. It says DCO Shock HMP. If oh, people are geez, for look you. at that. Yeah, DCO so, Shock. Look at that. Maybe, All right. Maybe you can edit it. I don't know, but heads I up. Doubt it. <laughs> I doubt it. You know what? It's DCO Shock. Uh, uh, <laughs> I'm I like it. it. it, took, it took, you know how long it took me to figure out how to put put the, the, add these damn movies into a list. There's no way I'm going to be able to figure out how to edit my name. So it's DCO shock. <laughs> HMP. P- people don't realize it just means dead cat. Oh, I can't think of an O word. So anyway, damn it. Just 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 leave that one there and let's Pro- move on. Guys, I've had a lot of NyQuil, so I'm sorry. I'm not quite <laughs> myself. Anyways, all right, let's get into it. Uh, let's move into our feature review of The Shining from 1980. I don't suppose they uh, told you anything in Denver about the tragedy we had up here during the winter of 1970. I hired a man named Charles Grady as the winter caretaker. From what I've been told, I mean, he seemed like a completely normal individual. But at some point... During the winter, he must have suffered some kind of a complete mental breakdown. He ran amok and uh, killed his family with the axe. Well, you can rest assured, Mr. Ullman, that's not going to happen with me. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> so The Shining was released in June of 1980. Tell me if that's wrong. I believe that's correct. It was directed by Stanley Kubrick. And it is, um, some would argue... Uh, a somewhat unfaithful adaptation, somewhat faithful. It depends on your perspective, but uh, we know that Stephen King wasn't super thrilled with the adaptation of The Shining. He loves, he loves <laughs> this movie. Yeah, that's yeah. Josh is like, yeah, we we need not stand on the you know the niceties. Yeah, that's right. So he he did not yeah. like this version. I mean, just as recently, I read an interview with him. I think in 2016, where he would not back down about how little he liked the film. In fact, the interviewer said, is it possible that Kubrick made an incredible film, but a terrible adaptation? And he said, no. <laughs> wow. Now see, uh, wow. Do, do you think that's permissible? I mean, is that okay for him to feel that way? I, I think it would be hard to separate what you thought was so great about your story and to have someone else take it and kind of, as he saw it, hollow it out and take like 
remove the life and heart of it. And I think for him, he can't get past that. Apparently it's, it's just really funny because so many people obviously uh, love and admire Stephen King, but there are so many horror fans who just don't agree with them on this one. I mean, it's, it's, you know, it's like him and Kubrick didn't see eye to eye. And I just think him and so many horror fans don't see eye to eye on this movie either. I think it's really ironic because we're going to be covering misery, which is about basically a mega fan who <laughs> is not happy with the way her favorite, like, you know, s- story or novels are being, you know, where they're going. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I know that's like, it's just, it's just similar themes in the sense that this was his, yes, he made it. Um, but he, you know, he's a, he writes novels and he's not a filmmaker. And when you hand it off to a different medium, I guess it's just in my mind, what, cause I was, I wrote down in my notes, like, why is he so upset about this? Like, what does, what adaptation is exactly perfect? And I guess like he does obviously like some of his movies, but I guess I feel like it's a total risk that you should be prepared for when you hand it off to somebody else and say, Hey, uh, do your best, you know, like do what you got to do. Yeah. And especially someone like Kubrick, you know, who, who is, um, they, I saw, I saw a quote from Jack Nicholson. Someone asked him to, you know, he said, you know, define Kubrick. And he said, uh, brings new meaning to the word meticulous. Mm. You know, I mean, Kubrick called up Stephen King at two in the morning and asked him questions like, do you believe in God? Well, uh, I'm sorry. Yeah. Called Yeah. Called up King and asked him, do you believe in God? Uh, while he was making this movie, you know, just things like that, because Kubrick just turns these things over and over and over again in his head as he's as he's putting them together. Or, or uh, and and you know, it's it's legendary of how much film he shoots to to make his movies. I mean, uh, The Shining had the record in in the Guinness for the most takes of one scene, I believe, over a hundred. Uh, and that's just what he does. That is the type of filmmaker he was. And he's and, so exact with it because although yeah. he shot that much film, that much film was not printed or saved. He burned the outtakes. He incinerated yeah, the outtakes. Exactly. The and then with 2001 A Space Odyssey, when they went to make um, in 1984, they went to make 2010, they had to redo all the models because as soon as he was done with 2001, he ordered his assistant to destroy all of the, the miniatures. Yeah. That's so crazy. my yeah. question, is it really him? Is Stephen King saying like, I'm not really commenting on if it's a quality movie. He's upset because he's like, I had a book and I don't think it's, 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 it went too far off for me to respect what I was hoping for. Is that kind of where I believe, I believe that's where it stems from, but he straight up says it's not a good movie. (laughs) So wow, it's crazy. He just said, Hey, it's not for me. I don't get it. You know, there are certain things that other people don't get. I don't get the, I don't get why people like the shining. And I, and I, you know, I think it is part of him as hurt because he was really invested in his telling of the story. And I don't think for him, it's not just, you know, a lot of times when there's a adaptation that, that strays from the source material, oftentimes it's like, well, we had to erase this character. Or we combined these characters or we had to change this or that. But for him, the right. heart of the film was gutted. The point of the film was gutted um, not only by Kubrick, but even just, from casting you know jack he was he was against that from the beginning as well i mean he really fought i think and that probably there's a big part of it that he fought against it so much during the making of it 
that then for it to come out and be this huge, you know, iconic film is probably kind of painful mm-hmm. for him as well. And this well, wasn't, and when this one was made, there hadn't been as many adaptations, right? It's not like this was the twelfth adaptation. This was because I know they had obviously Carrie came before, and then I think Salem's Lot might have been the second one, and that was the right. year before this came out. And Carrie was so what seventy six or something. Seventy six, so. yeah. So this was like the third or fourth. I'm not. I'm not really sure. So that could have played into it too. Like, you know, just a, a like maybe if this was, if this came out, if he had 10 of them already, I wonder if he would have had the same reaction as, you know, this was like the third one. And- you should say that the script was adapted from King's work by Kubrick himself, as well as Diane Johnson. And Diane Johnson was a novelist and she's a professor at UC Berkeley. And she had written a book called The Shadow Knows, which was a book that Kubrick had considered making into a film at one point and he didn't, but he liked her so much and thought she was so smart that he wanted to work with her on the screenplay for the shining. So Mm -hmm. he brought this other novelist in ironically to write her first screenplay, which was the shining. I have a trivia about that. I have that, that Kubrick made a point never to read the original screenplay by Stephen King. And this is by David Hughes book uh, about it. And he just says like, he had no intention of ever reading it and he didn't. And I don't know if that's true or not, but obviously that's where a lot of changes would happen. If he read the book or he, I know he liked the book, but I think he always saw it as a starting off point as a jumping off point is what I've heard described many, many times. You know, I don't think he ever intended to do a faithful adaptation. I think he had a lot of things he wanted to say and he liked the setting and he liked you know, the notion of, you know, right. The characters and things that, that King had put in there, but he had other things he wanted to do with the story. I think right from the beginning. Right. And I just want to clarify, he read the book, but Stephen King wrote a screenplay for it. Uh, right. to, and he never, yeah. it's claiming that he never read at all the screenplay. Right. Mm. I just think that's interesting. I mean, obviously that shows his intention of I'm trying to do what's work going to work for me, not what you want, you know? Right. Well, Kubrick saw, things as kind of disposable. He latched on the things he liked and he discarded the things he didn't. I mean, you see that a lot with the way he selected uh, the films that he would make. Cause a lot of his films, if not all of his films are adaptations of books. And he had a whole group of writer of readers who would just read novels around the clock and send him coverage. And they never knew that they even worked for Kubrick. You know, they just, because he wanted to get, he wanted to get his hands on everything that was out there, just sheer volume. And so people would just be reading novels, writing coverage, sending it to him. He'd discard it or keep it, you know, put it in the keep pile or the discard pile. And he, that's how we found a lot of the novels that he worked with when he was doing his soundtracks after 2001, he used primarily um, songs that had existed. He didn't want to have score written for his films because he didn't believe that he, you know, what's the point of reinventing the wheel? Essentially, there's already all of this great music out there by these masters. Why am I going to try to write a little song for my film? And so he would have, he would go to the record store and get all this music and it'd have his assistant there. And he would put a record down and, you know, put the needle down and he'd listen to it for a second. And if he didn't like it, he'd pick it up and whip it across the room. And his assistant had to be standing there ready with the next record to hand him the second <laughs> that he threw the other one away. Wow. Oh. 
Uh, he did that with a lot of stuff. He didn't believe in production designers. I mean, he obviously worked with some incredible production designers, but when he was doing his location scale, what he would do is he would send a photographer out to shoot photographs of real hotels. He he got thousands and thousands of real hotel rooms from all around the United States, and he just picked rooms that he liked and had those rebuilt within the Overlook Hotel set because he said, you know, why – you know, I'm no architect, you know, why would I do this thing that, you know, these masters are already out there doing, let's find the right door and let's rebuild that door. Let's find the right alleyway and let's rebuild that alleyway. And that's how he went about a lot of the work he did. That's fascinating. So Josh, a a moment ago when you were saying that uh, Stephen King just didn't feel like Kubrick captured the heart, he like hollowed it out and missed the point of it. What was that heart? Have we ever heard what Stephen King exactly thought was the heart that was missing? Yeah, for one thing, he felt as though it's almost like the way that the Force is described in The Last Jedi, (laughs) the way that King, I think, feels about The Shining, that it's not good or bad, that it exists, and it can be harnessed for good or evil, right? And so I think he felt as though um, the Jack character should be a good man. He was a good man who w- didn't understand how to use his power. And so he was easily manipulated by this house or this hotel that was using the power in a negative way. Right. Mm-hmm. And his son was another shining user force user who could, who was more, was even more powerful than his father, but could use it in a, in a, in a, going toward the light. And so the house wanted to destroy him essentially. Yeah. That does sound very uh, Luke Skywalker, Anakin Skywalker ish. A little it does, bit. right. It's, it's interesting, but the, the thing that King tells, cause King retells his stories over and over and over again. So it's kind of like after you watch two or three interviews with him, you kind of know all of his talking points. And one of the things he says over and over and over again was that his book was hot and the movie was cold. And what he talks about, he said, not only in the ending and just, very broad spoiler alerts for the shining, the movie and the novel in the ending of the book, the hotel burns to the ground at the end of the movie, it freezes. Right. And he said that for him was a great metaphor for what Kubrick did to the whole film. He took all the warmth out of the characters. And you see that when you watch stand by me or the Shawshank redemption or it, you know, his characters are warm people at the heart of who they are. Mm-hmm. And he, he has kind of believes in this innate goodness of humanity, but then there are these dark things that creep in. And I think for him, that was really problematic because he felt like Jack should be this good person who was fighting against the evil, but, and couldn't beat it, you know, See, and the wife, he, Oh, sorry, just really quick. He felt like the wife was really disrespected that character. He said that the way that she's presented in the film is misogynistic and that Kubrick mi- made her a very weak and pathetic character when in the novel she had been this really strong woman. So mm-hmm. those are kind of the things he talks about is the warmth being extract- extracted from the story. I know Stephen King doesn't give a damn what Jay of the Dead thinks, but I'm just going to put this out there. I do think that the the coldness, though, in my opinion, I think that that really adds that, that coldness of uh, the Jack character adds to the the horror nature of this because the reason this is one of the scariest types of like horror stories for me is and I've always been fascinated by this is because 
in this story, the father, who is presumably the protector of the family, is trying to kill the family. And and so, like, so having a coldness there, too, like having no warmth left and an absolute cold, cold heart, I mean, mm-hmm. that makes it even scarier for me. But again, I know Stephen King doesn't care what I think, but... No, but I think you're right. And I think it works. It's just a different thing. And I guess he can't accept the other version of that, you know, which obviously everyone pretty much agrees. It's a masterpiece of horror filmmaking, you know? Well, I'm um, not sorry. I'm yeah, just, I say, just go ahead. Go ahead. So I don't want to sound snarky. I just uh, turn over to, I just want to say, I wonder if this will sound snarky, but I wonder if Stephen King felt like his adaptation of maximum overdrive was was faithful i mean i wonder if he oh. felt like he captured uh, I, I i wasn't i know that sounds like i'm dissing but i'm just wondering because like he was the screenwriter on that and the director and i wonder if he felt like he successfully did that i don't he's, know i've heard him that he's come out and say he thought that was the worst adaptation of any one of his novels oh, okay okay self, self-depreciating there but fair enough um and he also had a lot of personal demons he was dealing with around that time too uh, you know true. drug addiction and so forth but yeah, sorry, William. Okay, go ahead. I just wanted to add that I think your question was so on point. I, preparing for this show, really tried to hone in on what that was all about because I also couldn't understand why he thought it was so gutted or hollowed out. And I came up, I mean, you know, there's all sorts of things on the internet, but I had compiled like 35 differences between the book and the film and i was gonna say that i think most of them to me not having written the book or this book being uh my all-time favorite book or baby even though i have read it um and it's a good book i felt like most of them were just kind of tweaks and it was way within the same ballpark and maybe even closer to this to i think being a very similar like this is clearly based off this book um but i also think just i know i'm repeating it but i just i just appreciated how well you guys were discussing that and i want to make it clear like josh nailed it i do think the heart of these characters um and danny it was dumbed down danny comes off kind of you know like more autistic in the film right he was very smart in the book or well spoken right and I could see if I had created these characters and lived with these stories and, and I, you know, again, I'm projecting, but these people might be real in his mind in some alternate reality and, and they continue to live or they lived in as, as real as anyone else he ever knew. You know, like sometimes when writers are profound, they describe, you know, the creating worlds and characters this way. You know, he's very hypersensitive to any sort of tweak. And the littlest tweak, I think, from my perspective was like, oh, yeah, that's a, I could see how that is totally different. Um, does that make this like all garbage? And now the, the film literally has like is shallow and has no point or or not enough point with substance or, you know, when you say heart. I mean, obviously, I wouldn't say this film is necessarily a film full of heart, but I feel like these are extremely in the film rich characters but i had no attachment to the book so it's to me i just feel like someone who's not attached to the book probably clearly more attached to the movie i i just feel and read the book i feel like you can't accept it on the terms that it is giving you and see i believe the biggest tweak here is stephen king saying i will never accept the terms of what this film is trying to execute 
and give me because that's not possible from where I'm coming from as I created this and it ch- it changed it in a way that I'm now completely unhappy and it's not what it is in my head, you know? Yeah, it's weird because that doesn't seem to be his attitude about adaptation generally. So this clearly right. was a difficult experience for him <laughs> that he can't. It was, know, but it's, it's just funny because it's, it's just a marriage because it's, it's like Stephen King's story, but these are definitely Kubrick-like characters. And when you think of some of his other movies, how a lot of the characters had that had did have sort of a a coldness to them, um, you know, especially something like two thousand and one, and and um, and and even in the Clockwork Orange to a degree, that they had sort of yeah, exactly. That the the characters had a coldness, so it's it's like a Stephen King story with uh, Stanley Kubrick characters inhabiting it. Totally. So this is probably crossing the line, which I usually do. But but something William said, you know, made me really think about this. I wonder if, because this apparently, he took it so personally, and maybe all we can know is from speculation, but I wonder if he saw something in the Jack character that he related to his own father, like in real life. And, and maybe he appreciated the, the humanity in his own father. And maybe this, no. maybe it was some sort of, I, I don't know, you know how people write he, things he to exercise. He hated his own father. So um, he, he said that, you know, he would have liked to knock his dad's head off. You know, he, he loathed his father. Um, his father lo- walked out on their family when he was very young and, left the mother with a bunch of unpaid bills and he hated his father's whole life. I think what's more likely is that it's about him and he sees himself as Jack because we know, you know, King struggled with alcohol addiction and with cocaine addiction and mm-hmm. things throughout for a good eight year period. And this book and movie happened during the time he was addicted. And I think you can see, um, you know, Jack Torrance's, actions as being recognizable to someone who's going through kind of an alcohol and or drug addiction. In fact, Jack in the film has hurt Danny early, you know, before the events of the movie take place, he's hurt his son mm-hmm. and is because of it stopped drinking and then falls off the wagon during the course of the movie. And that leads to a lot of the horror that takes place. And so right. I think that's probably um, the personal, you know, center of this film and that's why he took it personally because yeah but but it's not like and i haven't read the book i'm sorry i know that you you guys have but like but i mean it's not like in the book right there's not a redemption arc for that that character either right right but there is but there is some degree of humanity left it sounds like in the book where he's perceiving warmth stephen king talks about in the first shot of the shining that you see Jack Torrance, he already looks like he's evil. And I don't know if I agree with that, but you can definitely, you know, it's Jack Nicholson. You can see a wild yeah. spark in his eye for sure. Yeah, right? the, there know? is. He, he just said, you hear that? He saw it on television. It's, Something it's like that. You know, it, yeah. It's the eyebrows. It's those permanent arched <laughs> eyebrows. Right. That's what I was going to say. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Well, let me, let me say one thing that I've said many times about this film but I, I do think that, it, especially since this is our official feature review of it on this show, I got to put it out there. In horror cinema, if we're being perfectly honest, I, I think, especially over the last 100 years, more recently I'm seeing the, the genre migrate closer to this, this kind of high quality 
But but really, in this era here that we're talking here, right, in 1980, I mean, at that point, there had not been a lot of what I would call, like, um, masterpiece filmmaking um, exhibits like like this. Like, because, you know, in horror, like, a lot of times you'll have um, tremendous special effects, right? But then the acting will be poor. You might have tremendous production design or set design, you know, or, or um, really good lighting, but... But it seems like in this genre, because it's often low budget, there is not a lot of like greatness like all the way around the board. And I think that's one thing that's very special about The Shining. I think that's what makes it a masterpiece. And of course, it was made by a master filmmaker. Kubrick is no slouch. But in to have a, a, a gem like this in horror cinema that is a masterpiece all the way around, and, and I believe in every aspect from the performances to the effects. I mean, it is very difficult for me to find a flaw in this. And, and I just think that's one of the greatest reasons to celebrate this movie. No, I think it's incredible. Absolutely. So we should say we haven't really given a synopsis yet, but basically this is about a guy named Jack Torrance who decides, you know, uh, he's going to take a job as his winter caretaker at the Overlook hotel in, in Colorado. And so he, goes up for the meeting and when he meets with the people they say okay well what's going to happen is you know we're open during the summer months but then it gets so isolated up here there's you know the roads are closed we need someone to stay here in this location and take care of the house and basically make sure it doesn't fall apart and so you know you're going to be up here you may get cabin fever and in fact previous to this a previous caretaker murdered his entire family doing the exact job that you're being hired for. And Jack Nicholson's reaction is sounds great. I'll take it. You know? So he's not at all concerned about that. He's a writer and he's hoping that going up and, and being in this app and environment will allow him to overcome the writer's block he's had and, and, and get a lot of work done. Um, so he goes back and he brings up his wife, Shelly Duvall and his son, Danny played by Danny Lloyd. And they get there on Halloween day is the first day that they're alone in the Overlook hotel, ironically. So um, the kind of the trouble starts on Halloween in this film and carries out, you know, for a ways throughout the, throughout the winter. And, um, and it's essentially, I think the film is uh, depicting a descent into madness. And I, I think there are a couple of moments where, it's overtly told to us that this might be supernatural forces at play, but I think there's a lot of the film that allows you to see this as maybe this is all psychological and happening within the heads of these characters. We've already heard, you know, the very outset of the film, this type of isolation can drive you crazy, you know? So I think it's fascinating on that level as well. Mm -hmm. Uh Yeah. And, and so, I mean, if you want to speak to just real quick, then let's talk about like the, the, the genre classification for this. I mean, it, I think it's interesting because here we have, I mean, obviously there is a, a drama, obviously, but it's also a slasher film as well. It's a slasher film and it's a supernatural film. And I think the supernatural elements are supported in that, because I see what you're saying, you could read a lot of it as being in the heads, but when um, Scatman Crothers, his Halloran character, has, um you know, he has these like, I guess, uh, what is it? These inklings or promptings 
to go help. You know, he 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 senses trouble. You know, I I think that supports right. that there is there is a shine that, uh, that if that, that happened. Right. If that happened, now, there's a moment in, you know, we talked about this when we did our Stephen King coverage earlier in last year, I guess was, what was it? In the end of the summer last year. And when we reviewed secret window, there's a moment in that film where early on the camera moves through the mirror. And then we are to, we are to understand we're now within the psyche of this character. And then toward the end of the film, we come back out of the mirror and we know we're in the real world again. Right. And there's definitely, there's a mere moment in this film. I realized for the first time, having just discussed that about secret window for the first time watching this film. Oh, he got that from the shining. There's this moment where Jack's eating breakfast in bed and the camera goes off the characters and instead zooms through the mirror to into a close up of, of Jack and Wendy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, I and, and so it could be understood as this is, you know, this is on the other side of, reality potentially right a good example in this film to me if i remember right is there are shots of the bar and maybe even dialogue where they say you know there's no alcohol here and at the bar there's it's not decked out full of alcohol it's it's all gone or it's empty and then there's a shot you know where not only is there now alcohol but a bartender and i think whatever you decide is happening obviously I think says, of course, in a, in a positive way, it's not negative, but it says a lot about you. You know, I mean, if you default towards, oh, yeah, he's now lost it. There's still no alcohol there or a bartender. He's just out of his gourd. Or if you're like, right. holy crap, a ghost just appeared with ghost liquor. Let's see what it wants. You know? Yeah. I mean, I, I'm actually really far on the side of this is supernatural, but there is a moment that a lot of people point to as the one kind of irrefutable moment which is jack is locked inside the refrigerated grater the food storage and grady the butler you know the manager comes and opens the door for him right and that's that's the moment that people point to that say well look that's irrefutable that has to be him but i've also heard theories that well what that actually is is jack is shining and that's him using his powers to open the door Mm -hmm. so um, or, or, yeah. or, I mean, whatever evil inhabits, you know, the, the evil could have um, freed him, you know. Yeah. And see, that's that's the thing. I, I personally, and I know that we're being very open-minded here, which is, which is really nice, but I do feel myself wanting to, like, dig in my heels as we're having this discussion because it's like, ah, this is the way I feel. But I do feel like there's a blend of both in this. Like there's the talking to the guy in the bar. It's like, okay, yeah, he's out of his gourd. But at the same time, like, uh, you know, Halloran coming back, I think, I think there are real elements and nutty elements blended. That's how I read it. But then um, you have the wife actually experiencing it uh, at one point, you know, towards, um, towards the end of the movie too. Mm -hmm. Oh, right. Which she could be going crazy too. You know, we don't know. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, again, True. like the the cabin fever setup that we're given at the beginning. But right. I mean, I, I really do think you talked about genre classification, Jay. I think mm-hmm. this is one of the best examples I could give an alien spacecraft of this is what a horror movie is, because it has a little bit of everything. It has yeah. this descent into madness. As you say, it's, it has a slasher elements. It's supernatural. It's psychological. 
there's this overwhelming feeling of dread from the opening moment of the film, mm-hmm. which is crazy. It's one of the few times when score is actually used in the film. Original score is that driving shot where, you know, Jack is headed up to the Overlook Hotel and he's driving through, you know, Glacier National Park. And we have that creepy music with the opening credits. That's that's one of the few bits of original music made for this movie. And um, it's super unsettling because it feels the, the shot looks gorgeous. It feels like it should have light, beautiful, heartwarming, triumphant music behind it. But instead, it has this really odd, mm-hmm. uncanny, off kilter droning, you know. And yeah. it's, I think from that moment on, you know, you're in for something weird. Right. It just tells you right off the bat that, hey, so this is not going to end well. Yeah, I want to reinforce what you said there, Josh, because I had the um, it was it was recent within the past um several months. I forget when it was exactly, but I had the opportunity to see this on the big screen in the theater, and and yeah, that really okay. comes that comes across so strongly in that opening because I remember I just felt so unsettled from the beginning, and maybe it's a familiarity with the film, but honestly, this takes me back. This is one of the the first movies that scared me even like um, peripherally, like when I was a little kid, I didn't watch all of it directly, but I would have like family members watching it in the other room. Like it'd be on, I don't know if it was HBO or Cinemax or whatever, but it'd be out my aunt and uncles. And that's where I was scarred with lots of horror because like they would watch that. My cousins would watch it. And this is one of the movies that I was so afraid of. And my, my dad was obsessed with it, of course. And so this, I have early horror childhood scarring <laughs> associated with the shining. And so I wonder mm-hmm. if, if just, I wonder if there's some sort of just familiarity or maybe a nostalgic scare that we've experienced that, that makes it f- so full of dread. I agree about the score, but I think there's something inherent in the film that also like kind of pulls us in and haunts us a little. Oh, I think there's a lot there. And it is unnatural and uncanny throughout, you know, the opening, it's not quite as uncanny as, you know, the movie that you and Dave disagreed on in, in his top 10 list, uh, the killing of a sacred deer, <laughs> but it has that kind of awkward, unnatural flow to it at the beginning of this movie for a long time when they're like being shown around the grounds and seeing all the different rooms. And it's so kind of, I don't know, just unsettling. And it shouldn't be. It's the most mundane stuff you can imagine. But that's that's the that's that's the 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 meticulousness of of Stanley Kubrick is the way he frames those. It's like you're seeing everything. You're seeing the hotel. And that's I think it it's the way that he the way that he stages that, I think it just keeps everything like from a distance because it's almost like a long shot as they're going through these areas and you're looking at the hotel and everything, but I don't know. It's almost like a distance or something. And, and you get that. We, we get that throughout the movie. We get that in a lot of Kubrick's films. Um, you know, he's very big on space, you know, like, uh, like sort of cinema space. And you get that a lot in this movie and it does bring a coldness to it and a distance to it. And, and I think that um, you throw that into everything with the story and everything. And I think it, it's definitely unsettling. Definitely. One of the things that, brought that about in this movie was Garrett Brown uh, as the Steadicam operator. This was very early on in the use of the Steadicam. It had been used on maybe 10 movies before this. 
you know, and a lot of the time it was just used in action or movement scenes. What Kubrick did is he put the super wide angle lens on. And like you say, he would just, it was constantly moving and constantly revealing the, this space, you know, yeah. and, it, and it had this effect of making it this weird shape because I, I've heard some of the people who worked on the film talk about the maze, for instance, you know, that was like had these eight foot tall walls, but with that wide angle lens on that steady cam, they look like they're 30 feet tall, you know? And right. It, it's, and it has this weird effect on the hallways and when he's moving around corners and when they're further away, they look really far away because you're on this really wide lens and I don't know. Yeah. The whole thing, it just looks unnatural right. to some degree. I mean, even even just the, the, just standing there bouncing a ball against the wall, you know, that, that's, that <laughs> scene from a distance and, and you just, everything about it just, it's just ominous. I agree. William, let's say you next. Take us our next direction. Well, look, I love themes. So whenever I think of movies to talk about, I love honing in on on obvious themes, but also maybe some of uh, you know secondary themes that are, are still potent. But um, I know that this comes up all the time. But to me, I love when horror uses uh, elements as its own threat as the, as the same time as other threats so like you know the isolation obviously right but you have isolation this is doubling down you're not only in the you're in the mountains and then you're snowed in and you're alone and you're in a hotel um I, what i was thinking was is i when josh was saying you know uh at the beginning about how when presented with what this situation is going to be to jack the character jack right or um right jack is uh this is what it's gonna be like man and he's like yeah i'm in and in my mind i'm like i think josh would say that too and i was wondering what you guys would would do like are you guys like yeah this is ideal regardless of this the way this story unfolds or are you legitimately comfortable or uncomfortable with that kind of isolation you know um i would not be comfortable i don't think with that sort of isolation just knowing you're cut off i mean for me this is this is this is almost like like alien or you're on a spaceship, how, ma- how many light years away from Earth? <laughs> yes. You're right. just as far away from any sort of help uh, at this hotel. You might as well be in a spaceship. And I don't know that I would have, uh, yeah, I just I just don't know that, especially in, in, in that specific hotel and then finding out what happened before. Mm-hmm. No, I'd, I'd say uh, thank you very much and I'd head home. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's very unsettling. And yeah, and as a guy who has a pacemaker, that's not an, an energizer, you know, battery, you know, like that's scary. Like if something went wrong with my heart in a place like that. So there's that, that side of it, but also, yeah, I would like Dave, I would kind of be haunted by what had happened there previously. I think that would kind of freak me out. Was I right about Josh, Josh? <laughs> <laughs> Are you all in? Oh yeah, I would go for sure. Yeah, I would, that would be my, it's, it's kind of, it would kind of be my dream scenario to be up there to be honest especially they've got a snow cat you could have so much fun if you had skis or a snowboard (laughs) (laughs) right i i actually do think that um i think you know i mean they just have the the one child um i think a fear of something happening where the child you know or or your wife get hurt or really really sick that would be pretty scary um 
But other than that, I actually am attracted to the idea of of just kind of escaping kind of all the day-to-day stuff that tends to just kind of, you know, <laughs> add up and, and can get a lot of anxiety and pressure about. <laughs> um, you know, the one thing I picked up uh, as a as like someone who's trying to create. So the time I recently watched it for this and I started really honing. This is the first time I honed in on this emotion was when when Jack is trying to come up with his he's trying to be a writer. He's trying to get away to be creative and write write his book. And I I honestly look, I mean, I think up to this point when he shows that he's just been repeating the same phrase, right? I'll work no play, make Jack a dull boy. I, I honestly I think it's supposed to be, oh no, he's insane. I, and that's all I've ever really thought of it. And this time I was like, it's kind of a commentary on, oh, he's out of ideas and there's nothing or or he's not good at, at being a writer and there's nothing that's gonna change that. And to me, I was like, All right, that's the that's the freakiest thing in this movie right now for me. <laughs> and yet and, and yet he has that one scene, that one scene where Wendy walks in and interrupts him. And he gets really upset and he's like, whenever you hear this and he's typing or wherever, whenever I'm in this room, don't come in and bother me because now I've lost my concentration and you know, how I got it. Now it's going to take so long to get it back. And certainly not to that extent, but I've had that happen to me where I'm sitting here and I'm writing and, and then someone will walk in and just say, Hey, I thought maybe this weekend we could do this. We could do that. Blah, 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 blah. And I'm trying to answer and you know, and, and not, and kind of keep what I'm doing. And it does make it very hard. And then when you lose that, it's kind of hard to go back. I always kind of think of this, that scene in this, um, in those situations where you got to kind of go back and you got to recapture it. But the way Jack Nicholson handles that, I mean, he's just such a bastard to her (laughs) (laughs) in that scene, you know, he just doesn't care. Right. Um, and that's like the first, He's like watching YouTube cat videos if it was on his computer. Right. Yeah, exactly. Like he's not actually even doing anything, you know? Yeah. Well, and and something you said there also triggered me there, William. Like uh, this reminds me in terms of theme, it reminds me a little bit of how uh, there's a theme in the village. M. Night Shyamalan's The Village, which is uh, basically that you can't escape sorrow, that, that, that sorrow will hunt you down and find you. And I think it's the same thing with horror. Horror hunts you down. And even though they did try to escape to this place and they are isolated, it, it's, it still finds them. Because as we've said, we know that they had unrest and unpleasantness in their home. He had injured his son before and um, he had the drinking problem and horror and sorrow still hunted him down and still found them. I think that's tremendous. Hmm. Yeah, that's yeah, those I, are awesome themes. Yep, definitely. I just want to say there are so many kind of theories out there, fan theories about what the film is all about, and those are covered in the documentary Room Two Three Seven, and also all over YouTube. And mm-hmm. there, it's wow. interesting to me that they. I, first of all, I I like a lot of them. I think they're probably equally as many interesting theories as abysmal theories out there. And I think a lot of them are supported by the text of the film. I think it's in there a lot of it, you know, and I think what's so fascinating about that is a lot of the time, I know not everyone appreciates an open-ended film or a film that, um, you know, doesn't tie up all the loose ends, but I think it's, 
amazing when you have it coming from a filmmaker who it's clear that they cared about every single frame of the film. It's clear that they cared about every bit of wardrobe and production design and music that they, they labored over all of these things. Then when it's left and somewhat ambiguous as to what is the point of this, it leaves so much room for interpretation. I think that's one of the reasons this film has been so successful is there's, it doesn't tell us what the key is to unlocking it. And so we search for that and we want that as an audience and it rewards repeat viewings to kind of try to decode all of these different elements of the film. I just saw one on Twitter the other day, which I'd never seen in all my time, you know, pouring over every supplemental piece of material I could on the shining, trying to understand what it, what it was and why it was. And I saw this tweet and this guy actually says this himself. This is from S J may 92 Samuel J may on Twitter. He says only just noticed the green hedge maze, like tie that Jack wears at the beginning of the shining talk about foreshadowing. And it is, if you look at the tie that Jack wears in his interview, and on Twitter here, he's put a photograph of it zoomed all the way up. It looks exactly like the maze. It's like he's wearing the maze around his neck at the oh. beginning of the film in the first scene. And the shirt oh. he's wearing is a green checkered shirt, which also kind of brings to mind the maze to some degree. Mm-hmm. So that, that was fascinating to me. And I think there's so many little details in that that I understand why people come up with the, you know, the moon landing conspiracies or the native American undertones, you know, and the Holocaust undertones. I think it's, I think, first of all, I think Kubrick is detailed enough and thoughtful enough and right. spent so much time developing it that it's quite possible all of that is in there. I don't think one necessarily precludes the inclusion of the other, but it also maybe none of it is, but, it, but it's so rich and dense that it allows for that interpretation. Well, let me let me run something by you guys on this then. So, so, and I think that um, I'm still trying to figure out if we're in agreement or not, Josh. So this is really funny. As a, as a wannabe film critic for like 12 years now, um, there's one thing that I learned, and that is that depending on the richness and the depth of the film, like depending on the quality of the cinematic product, um, that that really determines how much you can say about it or how much you can talk about it. For example, like, you know, after reviewing a film like Mr. Woodcock, remember that from 2007, it was not a horror film, but it was a Billy Bob Thornton. (laughs) You just don't have a lot to say about Mr. Woodcock, except the title's kind of funny, right? But, But when you have a filmmaker like Stanley Kubrick, who's a very rich filmmaker, very detailed. And then you have a writer like Stephen King, who's written a very rich story that I, I think there is so much material there that can be drawn upon. Yes, some of it may have been intentional, but I also think that it's just that this cinematic product is so richly made and developed that, that we can pull from it all these different theories. Yeah. Whereas Mr. Woodcock, you you don't have room two three sevens about Mr. Woodcock and what that was about. <laughs> yeah, I don't think I don't think Mr. Woodcock was about the moon landing or Native American. <laughs> right, right. I think that it shows that um, whether all of the theories of 
of this documentary uh, 237 which is clearly i think it's like three or four different um i don't know what you'd call them i guess like uh the shining conspiracy theory experts <laughs> of sorts um and they're all giving their different theories uh and it's amazing and fascinating and i would say i and I, maybe i'm just saying the same thing is the reason you don't have that about other films is because it didn't allow or or even execute the type of storytelling that would even be able to entertain any of those questions or theories because it's just not that rich at all. And so it doesn't really matter whether they're true or not, because I believe it's offered, you know, a place that I personally, as, as someone who has aspired to be a filmmaker, I can tell you, I think that's like the ultimate greatest achievement is to tell a story that people will continue to talk about for years and have all of their own thoughts and feelings that not only they have, but they love entertaining with other people. Mm-hmm. And, and basically what we're doing right now. I mean, yes, you know, we could do this about a crappy movie or, or you know, a bad movie and have a blast doing it. And that is a different a form of inter- of entertainment but this is like we have a lot of questions and thoughts and feelings and we're passionate about it and and they're they're in some ways similar but often all over the place anyway to me i feel like that is more um impressive than necessarily you know i mean well here that's the problem he did everything else he did was executed perfectly too to me so it's like he could have fallen short somewhere else but he didn't so that's why this is like when we use masterpiece that's not just used lightly here in my opinion i believe it's legitimately a masterpiece no i i agree and it's you know you have obviously this film is entertainment and film is art and this is this is when it when it's art it it continues to grow beyond and and after and and for for years after what you know i mean um, uh, all of these theories about, um, you know, the Mona Lisa, what is she looking at and the smile? Maybe he just, it might've just been a portrait, <laughs> right. but uh, because it's a great piece of art, uh, everybody is, is looking at it and they have their own ideas and their own theories. And then in their minds, that's exactly what it is. And this is that type of film. This is, um, this is something that has grown beyond probably what even Kubrick intended, um, because it is that type of movie. But remarkably, it is both artistic and simultaneously entertaining. Go ahead, Josh. Yes. Yeah. I was just going to say, you know, did you see the documentary Kubrick's Boxes, Stanley Kubrick's Boxes? Mm-mm. No, oh, that's no, not. It's not. It's not one I'd highly recommend or anything, but it was fascinating. After Kubrick died, uh, you know, uh, he, had, he had been in touch with this documentary filmmaker that he really, really liked, and then all of a sudden, Kubrick dies and the guy never heard from him. But then several months after his death, he heard from the Kubrick estate and they said, look, we've got some of Stanley's things. And we thought you as a filmmaker might be interested in going through this archive and kind of taking a look at what he had, you know, and we had, they had a separate archivist who was archiving things for a museum, but they thought maybe this filmmaker would be interested in it. So he goes to the place, he goes to their house, the Kubrick home. And he opens the storage area, and there are 1,000 boxes filled with his research materials from all of his films. You know, I talked about all those photographs that he would take around town or of all of the doorways, all of the hotel rooms. He, all of that raw material was in there. And he, so he, I mean, he really 
you know, he, the, the documentary filmmaker said it took him five years to go through all 1000 boxes. Wow. So imagine oh, wow. Kubrick in preparation, you know, for one of his film projects and doing all of this work. I, one of the videos that I see on YouTube a lot, it's just, I don't know if it's my algorithm or whatever, but when I watch YouTube videos, it pops up, I would say every third video. Have you ever heard of those masterclass uh, videos that yes. they have yes. with Martin yes. Scorsese? Now, now or, you've gotten acting masterclass. Yes, I've seen, I've totally. seen the, it was, it was the, um, the, the Herzog, the Scorsese and the Ron Howard now, I think is the Samuel the Jackson, one. David Samuel Jackson, Helen Mirren. Yeah. Well, the new one that I that I get all the time now is Ron Howard. And right. Ron Howard says something that I've deeply believed for years, which is we all have an innate storytelling ability in our core, or most of us do anyway. But then if you're a filmmaker, you need to back that up with craft. And I just thought, wow, that, I, I love that. Because I've, I've thought about that a lot as, again, also kind of like an aspiring you know, screenwriter, when I've written screenplays in the past, I feel like I'm most successful when I just kind of go brain to page and don't worry about the structure and stuff. I feel like it happens naturally for me and I, because I'm a storyteller, you know, and I think a lot of people have that natural ability. But then if you really want to be serious, if you want to create something that's lasting beyond and not to just attack this Mr. Woodcock movie or whatever, but if you want to create something that's lasting like The Shining – you see the immense amount of preparation and research that goes into a film like the shining from someone like Kubrick, this obsessive level. And maybe it's not necessary to go that far, but how many other films do we talk about as horror masterpieces and that the general public would agree are masterpieces that not just horror fans, but that the entire film community will agree. Yes, this is a masterpiece of filmmaking. There aren't a lot. And so I don't know. I think, I think it is this insane amount of work that Stanley does. So for me, that was very fulfilling to watch as a creator, because I often think, man, I don't know, like, like the Jack Torrance character, maybe I'm not going to be able to come up with an idea. Maybe I'm going to sit here at this typewriter and type the same sentence over and over and over again. But I think Kubrick kind of makes the case for like, you put in the work and you know, if you read every novel and you listen to every song and you look at every possible location, you'll be able to kind of come up with what you need to make a great work of art. Anyway, I think that's right. in the DNA of this movie for me. And that's why there's, there was so many years between his films. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think his next movie after the shining, I think was full metal jacket in 1987. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and something about this, this meticulous filmmaking it reminds me of Terry Gilliam and uh, you you know that whole um, discussion about the hamster, right? And uh, uh-huh. so, and I'll, I'll probably mess up the details on that. Um, can somebody just give set up my comment here with a brief uh, description of the hamster? What was that for? Was that in Twelve Monkeys or yeah? Yeah, uh, okay. it's a ter- Terry Gilliam's uh, hamster effect. Yeah, the hamster effect. There was a shot in Twelve Monkeys the that it factor. was. Or hamster factor, right? But it was it wasn't that complicated of a shot necessarily. It just was Bruce Willis was getting dressed, I believe, um, to get ready for time travel, and of course the production design was filled with all sorts of post-apocalyptic sort of you know weird underground setting stuff. Mm-hmm. All of these compartments, and in just one of them, out of hundreds, you know, just one, there was supposed to be a hamster uh, that had a will in it, <laughs> and they did. 
I don't remember the number, but an insane amount of takes because Terry Gilliam was like, I want this shot, which again is not even the focus of any. It, we're all looking at Bruce Willis right. getting ready for time travel. But if that hamster, and this is before CGI was massively used, and I don't think Terry Gilliam would have relied on it. No he's way. He's like, I want that hamster running on that wheel in the shot. Yes. And it wasn't doing it. And he's like, well, we're not moving on until it does it. And everyone, I'm assuming, having worked on films, you know, you got a lot of random crew that are like, why on earth? Are we doing this? Like, what yes. is the point? So, thank you. They, that was very good. You could, yeah. wa- you could watch that shot and never in a million years even see that there's a hamster wheel in the shot. Right. Like, I was just going to say, I bet you at least, and probably the numbers are higher than this, but at least 99 out of 100 people wouldn't even notice that, right? But right, but right. Terry Gilliam, much like Stanley Kubrick, as I understand him, um, their desire for the the mise en scene. I mean, they wanted to completely control and and be aware of everything that is within the view of the camera, within the shot. And see, I think that's what you're talking about, Josh. For somebody who who puts that kind of investment in their art to create something that that is a realization of their vision, then I think that's why there is such a depth of. Um, richness and and theories that we can draw from and why we can appreciate it for this many years i think so so you no doubt i also just think for Mm -hmm. me the lesson was you can do it through hard work you know it's not just and also let's also be clear they're both insane like terry gilliam and and stanley kubrick are both crazy oh my god there was i mean individuals you listen to the what was i listened to the um audio commentary or the uh the yeah his audio commentary for time bandits and terry gilliam was talking about they were shooting somewhere in the middle east um and there's a scene uh well he needed to get to the top of this building for this scene and and they weren't allowing him there. He was in the face of a guard holding a machine gun, screaming at him, saying, I am going to the top of this building to get this shot, whether you want it for whether you will let me or not. They eventually worked it out after, I don't know, half a day or whatever. And the shot is one guy lifting up a horn and another guy blowing the horn. And then he pulls back and gets into the scene. I mean, it's on screen for maybe four seconds. Right. And, and and it took him half a day and arguing with a guy with with a machine gun. Wow. And can, and can I say, <laughs> right, having worked in film and I have focused more as what's called like a field producer, which is kind of having one foot um, on the creative end on set and the other just trying to make sure, you know, chaos and, and disaster does not ruin the entire point of why everyone's trying to make a film. Um I'm saying I think what it is, is it seems totally ridiculous and insane, which we're saying like it kind of is. But I think it's a bigger picture. I think from an artist's point of view, um, if you were a person, if I'm like a, a field producer where I'm saying I'm looking to partner up with a creative mind who I'm, I'm investing my time and talents and I want this to be worth it and I hope it helps my career. There's something to be said when you're working with an artist that says, you know, when he's talking about a hamster effect and and that means uh, you can you can fill in whatever that is like we've got to have and then fill in the blank. This is how artists work. We have to film it here. We have to have this actor. We have to have this goose, whatever. And and you're, and, and you're thinking to yourself, are they out of their minds? 
right? But ultimately, <laughs> and that's a producer's job. But at the same time, you're think you, I believe, if you want to back an artist, a true artist, you're also saying to yourself, they have thought this out to the level of that stupid little hamster, and that means if we all play our cards right and help execute this, it might become great it's a it's 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 one of the necessary ingredients wow. to greatness it's also ingredients to insanity but depending on <laughs> all the other factors <laughs> yeah i mean couldn't we argue that uh you know tommy i always say his name wrong tommy well tommy wiseau or wiseau of the room i mean he had he had some passionate ideas about how his art should be as well right but right. that's kind maybe, of maybe the talent. Maybe the talent wasn't there, but he did have the passion. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm just I saying. But, but but I think what William is saying. Correct me if I'm mischaracterizing you, William. Is that um you know when you are in the midst of an artist, uh, talent questionable, whatever. But it, it, when somebody has obviously got this passion and the preparation, the forethought, then maybe maybe it's worth rolling the dice and see if you can you know cash in on greatness. You also wonder, is it worthwhile, right? So, you know, there are the different approaches to acting, for instance. The, you know, and I'm, we're talking about this idea of raw talent versus craft. You know, I think there are people like Mel Gibson who famously can be in some intense scene. And then the second they call cut, cut he just goes, starts joking with the camera crew. And then as soon as they call action again, he'll just jump right back into character. The other people like Daniel Day-Lewis, who will be in character for six months before and after he makes a movie and can't get over, you know, the torture he's put himself through. There's a famous story from Marathon Man. Have you guys heard that one with Dustin Hoffman? He had put himself through all of this emotional strife, and and he was in doing a scene in the morning with Laurence Olivier where he was supposed to be being tortured. So he stayed up all night so he would be exhausted and have these bags under his eyes and you know, he's he was miserable and he got to set and Lawrence Olivier walks in and he says, you know, why don't you just try acting, dear boy? You know, like <laughs> you, you can also act, you know, there's so there's that end of it. But, you know, I watched so many Kubrick documentaries over the last week. I can't remember who to give credit to this for. But one of the interviewees, I, in fact, it must have been one of the editors, actually, who had someone who had seen a lot of the takes that got back to the editorial room. And they talked about how, you know, people thought Kubrick's crazy because he's doing so many takes. But what happens was like in the first five takes, you would see the actors kind of bring all of their best ideas to the table, everything they had prepared, everything they wanted to do and did a really great job. Usually within the first five takes, then it would start getting worse as they would get tired. Then they would start resenting him that they were there. Then they really just couldn't go on anymore. And at the point where they had given up, he would continue to ask for takes. And then he would see the actors start doing things that were unpredictable and unnatural and uncanny and things that you just don't normally see on screen. And they, and they were talking about this person. I wish I could remember who it was. was talking about with Jack Nicholson. A lot of the times in the film, you're seeing his 27th and 29th take like clockwork. It's always what he got to on like take 27 to 29. 
is what made the movie because he's making these weird faces and doing these weird things because he just can't think of anything else to do. He doesn't know what else to do so he can stop doing the scene, you know? Wow. And I thought that was fascinating. That's really interesting. Yeah. <laughs> That's mind-blowing. I um, know this is a little different, but it does remind me, um, again, like we're, we might be losing this a little bit, but for a long time, you know, special features or commentaries on on films, home videos that come out, right? I was watching the or listening and watching the commentary of the six uh, Star Trek, and I know this isn't horror, but just the idea that, uh, and this is with William Shatner and, and Leonard Nimoy, um, I think it's the undiscovered country, but there was a scene, it's all drama at a, at a table. Hey, we've there's a problem, we got to decide what to do. And the director said um, that William Shatner and, and Leonard Nimoy were the exact opposites, where Leonard Nimoy, he would get the best take that he was going to get in the first, you know, like 10. And, and then it got really, it started dropping really quick. He's either bored. He's like, clearly I've done this. I don't care anymore. And then, so he, he would always use w- w- the first few takes of, of Leonard Nimoy's uh, performance. But he said, William Shatner, on the other hand, the first like 30 takes were really hammy and very like just kind of the tone was whacked out. And so he would go 30 takes to exhaust him. And then he would just start talking normal. <laughs> <laughs> and then that's when he said he got the best performances out of him when he just kind of exhausted him. And I was like, that is fascinating. I, I heard that early on when I was trying to learn about film. And I, it always stuck with me that you have to truly adapt with the, the what, you know, the filmmaking is so complicated that you've got to look at what's in front of you, the formula, the ingredients you have and say, OK, I wanted this kind of cake or dessert, but I have these ingredients and they're not what I was expecting what is the best I can make out of these ingredients? Wow. Whenever an actor's up there thanking the Academy, they should probably thank the editor first. (laughs) (laughs) Right. I was just thinking poor Shelly Duvall. She had actual like nervous breakdown during the course of making the film and had to get through that and then came out of it and continued making the movie, you know, like she, she went through the whole gamut of having a breakdown and then recovery during shooting process and she was she wasn't getting any sympathy from from kubrick or not at all none at all he quite disliked her apparently and apparently cut a bunch of her lines out because he just didn't couldn't stand the way she was performing them but i think she is fantastic in the movie i think she adds so much to the film oh yeah in fact in horror cinema i think she has one of the great performances of fear up there with marilyn burns and texas chainsaw massacre i think shelly duvall is on that level of like genuine fear on screen somehow it's, it's because it's because of the the way she is i mean you know i know in the book she was a strong character but the fact that she's sort of meek um, and yet is put in a position to have to do what she does toward the end, I think is really what, what does that. I mean, it, 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 it's what really gets her, um, you know, to that point of, of fear, like you were saying, Jay, mm-hmm. um, is that she, she's not somebody who could normally stand up to this guy. And we saw that time and again, early on in the movie that she just sort of lets him walk all over her, but now she's got to be the protector. Yeah. Um, and she's not used to that. So she's got all these things playing, you know, playing on her. And it, and I, I thought that was what made it really interesting. Absolutely. Yeah. So um, we should probably start wrapping this review up pretty soon. <laughs> Although I'd love to keep going. on. I, like you said yeah. at the beginning, we could probably go on for like hours on this movie. And, and 
who couldn't? And and what that's what's interesting about it. I mean, how many times have we discussed this film before? Not not necessarily in a formal setting on horror movie podcast, but in general, I mean, we've discussed it so many times, and I feel like there is just always more to discuss. But um, let's kind of go around with our kind of conclu- concluding thoughts, and then uh, cap it off with your rating. I'll kick it off. Uh, just one silliness here. I want to say when Josh, when you were talking about Stanley Kubrick's boxes. I saw the writer director mm-hmm. that was John Ronson. And I just for some dumb reason, I always I've heard that name before and I always thought you guys were messing with me and um make it you know, make it some kind of spoof on Don Johnson, you know, it'd be like I, but but it's a real guy. So anyway, I'm sorry to John Ronson as well as Don Johnson for that. Uh the other thing I wanted to say is I wanted to just mention the subjectivity of the creator, which is when you were describing uh, that, as we've talked about the hamster factor and like the little the little nuances that the creator of the the artwork wanted to capture, I guess I could relate to that to some extent. Um, I'm not a filmmaker, but I am a musician, and I have recorded a couple of albums. And I remember in my songs, in the recording of the songs, there would be a certain riff or a certain way I would want my voice to come off and sound and it would be such a subtle nuanced thing but it would it would you know somehow tickle or touch that emotional spot within me where it satisfied me as as my desire to communicate something even though ironically it probably didn't even register with the people listening and maybe that's the case for a lot of these filmmaking choices but i do think that 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 subject subjectivity of the artist something that they want to convey is is a real phenomenon and i think that it can be valuable if if to no one else at least to the creator himself or herself anyways finally um just want to say that the shining is a remarkable film i believe that way back on in the horror palace days when we did our special episode of the best horror films of the 80s and 90s um this was my uh number one pick of the 80s decade was the shining i think it's an absolute masterpiece it is a 10 out of 10 it is a must see it is a must own and i say buy it and uh, what do you say dr shock uh yeah i i I mean, uh, and I've said this before on the show, but my experience is the first time whether it was 2 a.m. I woke up and I went into the other room and turned on cable. You know, cable <clears throat> was kind of new in our house and this was playing and that's what I watched. And it was before school and then I had to go to school after that. Um, and it <laughs> terrified me. I mean, it just built and built and built. I mean, from the start, who would think you, you could be so creeped out by a little kid talking to his finger? <laughs> you know, uh, to Tony, the, uh, the, the little, the little man that lives inside of him. Um, yeah. and just the way that everything built, uh, in the film. I mean, to this day, when I'm in a hotel, if I'm going around a corner, I'm saying there better not be little twins standing over there. That's right. Um, you know, it, so it, it's one of those movies that it, it, it's so unsettling that it, it, it stays, it does stay with you. And, and yes, it, it is a masterpiece. You get the you get the sense that every single shot that that Kubrick poured over that he just spent so much time on every aspect of it, and you get that in all of his films, um, and and this one especially. 
and um and then we didn't get into you know the the whole thing with with Jack Nicholson and and how and and, and just how insane he does get and then you know with uh, Josh saying you know that they get into the 30th take that makes a lot of sense um so it's a 10 out of 10 for me uh it's one that I think you will own and that you will revisit regularly um it it doesn't lose any of its power to um yeah, it doesn't. It 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 will get under your skin just as much on a tenth viewing as it does the first. Absolutely. Now, another thing I thought was was uh, interesting. Now, this is from IMDb, so I I don't know if this is a hundred percent correct, but the huge set of um, the room where Jack types, um, or you know, he's bouncing the ball off of the wall and everything, that was reused by Steven Spielberg for the Well of Souls scene in Raiders of the Lost Ark. That 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 scene that that area um, became the Well of Souls. I thought yeah. that was pretty interesting. Well, not only that, but you know, Kubrick's set burned down, so Spielberg actually had to delay his shooting of Raiders and go and shoot in France because they had to rebuild the Overlook because it burned down. Ironically, you know, Stephen King mentioned this in the book; it was supposed to burn down, but Kubrick didn't like that ending. <laughs> but then his set burned down, like it actually did burn down, and they didn't use wow. it in the movie. <laughs> <laughs> They did not like each other. No. no. No, apparently not. Well, if a guy calls you in the middle of the night and wakes you up, it's annoying. <laughs> <laughs> William does that to me all the time. It's really getting old. <laughs> okay. And what say you, William Rowan Jr.? Yeah, so my wrap-up thoughts are pretty simple. I do have just a couple of random trivia that I just liked when I read them, but it said that the actor Danny, or the kid Danny, um, in his audition, he just improvised... Uh, talking with his finger like uh, you know with to Tony and then that's where that came from which I thought that's see again you know it's something that maybe <laughs> obviously the director latches on to and it's and it's exactly what he wants but it, you know it it takes a group of people to all work together and I just thought it was so cool that the act the little kid thought to do that it's so organic that's pretty cool yeah um, and then uh, just a funny thing about Stanley Kubrick is apparently like at the time, like the MPAA, it was totally unacceptable to show blood in, in a movie trailer, like zero. And of course, in the in the trailer that was released, or at least when he showed it to them, there's this shot where, you know, I don't what would you call like? hundreds and hundreds of gallons of, of blood, <laughs> you know, come pouring, gushing out of an elevator. And of course, you know, that's kind of problematic. You're not supposed to show any blood, but he convinced the board that it wasn't blood, but actually rusty water. <laughs> and that's how it made it into the trailer. Wow. It's <laughs> amazing. Um, anyway, I mean, I, you know, these things you have to take with a grain of salt, but uh, any truth to it is good enough for me. It's a fascinating story. But uh, as far as the film, I already said it's a masterpiece. Uh, I mean, look, I don't, you know, just to, just to, say simply i think right off the bat the three of my favorite all-time greatest horror masterpieces is, is jaws um the thing john carpenter's the thing 1982 and shining and i hold all three of them as precious cinematic um you know horrors and thrillers and and just like all time this you know the darkness of the soul and all three especially this one yes you have to get the shining. Maybe you've seen Jaws, right? 
and you and you like it i'm saying you have to get this movie if you haven't seen it it's a must buy it's a must buy in every new format that comes out and it's so worth uh looking <laughs> into and listening to the commentary and reading up on how film works and why this was so groundbreaking and and i just can't recommend the entire package enough of the shining William, I loved what you just did because it reminded me so much. Tell, tell me, Doc, if this is right. It reminded me so much of the way that Greg Amortis rates like uh, Halloween or something like that. When he rates Halloween, yes. he's like, this oh, is a definite, he's like, purchase, purchase, buy, buy. I don't care how many you have to buy, buy every format. <laughs> I, don't uh, th- I don't think there's, I don't think there's a version of Halloween released that Greg Amortis doesn't own. I, I mean, he must have twelve D- uh, DVDs, <laughs> eight Blu-rays by this point. I yeah, love. No I love hearing that guy rate and recommend films that he loves. It is so awesome. Okay, bringing it home, Wolfman Josh, let's know your final thoughts and rating. One of my big-time life goals is to go to the film festivals that they do at the at the Stanley Hotel. So, so the film, it, you know, in the book and the film, it's called The Overlook Hotel. It's based on... A lot of hotels, as we mentioned, across the United States, the interior of like the big Colorado room is based on uh, the lodge at Yosemite National Park. It was called the Ahwanani Hotel, and then now it's called the Majestic Yosemite. But the exterior is a Timberline Lodge in Oregon, and the and it's based on the Stanley Hotel where King, you know, got the inspiration for the book initially. And when he did his remake television version of The Shining, they actually shot at stanley hotel and i just know a bunch of our listeners have been to both all these places like allison with a y sent us that amazing yes uh, video of her at the at the timberline lodge yeah. in oregon yeah joe brunette i think has also sent us photos of him there and um and then snowy otter she got married at the stanley hotel which is awesome it's <laughs> awesome that's, <laughs> that's a horror fan for you right there yes yeah, seriously but that's one of my big life ambitions is to go and hang out at these places. I don't, to me, it's they're so iconic. And I don't know. There's just something about them that is beyond cinema to me in a way. Like it just feels this movie just feels bigger. I mean, we're about to talk about misery. Misery is my favorite Stephen King adaptation. But it's a it's a story that has you know beginning, middle, and end. It's all there. It's all on the surface. It's very clear. The shining, and maybe it's just the supernatural element of it that that allows for, you know, when you're talking about someone who's descending into madness, when you're talking about the unknown of the supernatural, it allows for all of this other stuff. But I'd really encourage people to check out some of these theories about what the shining really means at the core, because I just, I feel like all the supporting evidence is there for a lot of them. I don't know if I'd recommend room two, three, seven, I guess maybe for like a one-time rental, it is pretty dry. I would say half of it kind of sucks, but some of it's really good. And, you know, there are definitely themes in this film about, you know, the butchering, the slaughter of the native American people. And and a lot of people say that the overlook hotel is America and the founding of this hotel is similar to the founding of America, that it's filled with the blood of these native Americans. And they talk about in the film multiple times, you know, that this hotel is built on an Indian burial ground that they had to fight off natives when they were building the hotel and the entire interior 
based on that Yosemite Lodge, um, you know, has all of this Native American decoration and motif. And you have Jack throwing that ball against the wall in kind of this violent manner toward the Native American artifacts. There were deleted scenes, um, early versions of the script where this Native American war mask played a predominant role throughout the film. Um, so there are things like that where once you see them, for me, I can't unsee them. Now when I watch the movie, I can't not see the Apollo 11 mission, you know, and how the, you know, how the conspiracy theorists have described Kubrick's involvement in that. I don't know. It's kind of fascinating stuff to me. So what I'm getting at is there's, there's just so much here. It's such a rich experience. It's something that you can watch over and over and over again. Dave mentioned it, it might even be better on a second viewing. I think it is better on a second view. I think it's, I think on a first viewing, you can kind of just take this at face value and that's fine. I think it is creepy and scary on face value, but there's just so much more going on here that I think that's why it's a classic. So it's 10 out of 10 for me and a buy it. Absolutely. I agree. <laughs> and uh, one comment on room 237. I remember the first time I saw that, I was like, I was fascinated and intrigued about two thirds of the way through. And then the final third, I was just annoyed. <laughs> like I was really bugged and I'm like, these yeah. people are really out there. You know, like I, I just, it got to the point where it was like too far or something. They interview like five different people. And I think half of them are interesting and the other half aren't. And so it's, yeah. it's hard to get through the, those that aren't. Yes, exactly. Um, one last PS on the shining. Uh, and I believe I have this correct here. So on Aaron Menke's lore podcast, which I love, I believe it's episode 10 titled Steam and Gas. That's a very creepy episode. It's amazing. I think you should listen to that if you're a fan of The Shining. And I am 95% sure that's the episode. Can you guys back me up on that? Is that the one? Anyways, if it's not, I'm sure somebody will I, I don't know, yell at me in the comments and put the right one. But I believe it's episode 10 of Steam and Gas of the Lore Podcast. We'll link it in the show notes. It's a must listen if you're a fan of The Shining. All right. And at this point on Horror Movie Podcast episode 138, let's move into our feature review of Misery. He almost died. You have a compound fracture of the tibia in both legs and the fibula in the right leg is fractured too. And as soon as the roads open, I'll take you to a hospital. In the meantime, you've got a lot of recovering to do. There is nothing to worry about. You're going to be just fine. I'm your number one fan. Okay, Misery was released in November of 1990. It is directed by Rob Reiner and of course adapted from the novel by Stephen King. William Goldman wrote the screenplay, and if I'm not mistaken, as he mentioned earlier, earlier, this is Josh's all-time favorite Stephen King adaptation. Is that correct, sir? Yeah, absolutely. I don't know. It's just the one that has, I, I think I've just lived with it, you know, the most, and it's the one I watch over and over again, and I love the setting. I love the characters. I love the actors. I love William Goldman. You know, I love the way he writes and, and so he's adapting King too, which is just a nice marriage of these two writers who I really enjoy. You know, Goldman's dialogue is so much fun and um, combine that with the King story and it's just really interesting. I don't know. I love it. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, I'm with you. Yeah. So, but but you're saying that that maybe you've spent the most time with it, and that's why it's your favorite. Because yeah, I thought you might have a, a different reason, uh, not a different one, well, but I mean, additional reasons. I mean, I've got a lot of reasons why I think it's a great film. I just think it was one of those movies. It was one of the first of its kind that I saw, you know, like I was pretty young when this came out, probably like fourth grade or Mm -hmm. third grade. I don't know, you know? And so I remember seeing this with my friends and, you know, it was like, you weren't supposed to have seen a movie like this yet. You know what I mean? Like it was, it was not a movie you were supposed to see. And, um, you know, I mean, look, there's so much suspense. I'm a huge Alfred Hitchcock fan and, Reiner has talked about just he watched all of Hitchcock's movies before he started filming, and you can feel that. Like you can really get the sense of the inspiration that Hitchcock was on this movie. Um, you know, it, it's it's about this character played by James Caan, Paul Sheldon, who is in this car accident after um, you know having spent some time in Colorado working on his novel. And he is in this this horrible car accident, probably should have died, but he's rescued and he and he wakes up and he's in the care of this seemingly very nice, friendly woman played by Kathy Bates, Annie Wilkes, who we find out immediately she's his number one fan, you know, and she's a nurse. So she's rescued him. She has the proper qualifications. And because she cares about him so much, she's going to take great care of him. and. um you know, trouble ensues pretty quickly thereafter. You know, he is in a sense trapped um, by his, by his number one fan and, and and also trapped in his career. You know, it's, I think his physical situation mirrors where he's at as Mm -hmm. his professional career. He is this guy who's written all of these very popular novels And again, you can relate this to Stephen King and he feels somewhat trapped, like as though he has to keep doing them and he can't kind of do branch out and do what maybe he would rather do. And Stephen King, you know, he was writing this under the pseudonym of Richard Bachman, but he was, um, as we mentioned during our Stephen King, our broader Stephen King coverage, he was found out. He was discovered to be Richard Bachman. And so Misery was the first film or the first book that he released after that and although it was intended to be a Bachman book he released it as king so maybe that even shows even more how autobiographical it could have been mm-hmm. you know because he was he was trying to sneak it out under this other author's name and in fact he didn't want this film to be adapted it was already on paperback by the time Rob Reiner's company got the rights and you know when his producer who had read it said i wonder if anyone's making doing anything with this and reiner said yeah obviously they have to be i mean it's it's already on paperback. I'm sure a million people have, are, are lobbying for it. And I guess King didn't trust anyone to do it because it was so personal to him, but he had loved Reiner's adaptation of stand by me so much. In fact, he says it was at the time it was his favorite adaptation of one of his books that he said, well, if, if Rob either produces or directs it, then, then you guys can have it. And initially it wasn't Reiner who was supposed to, um, directed the film it was uh is it george roy hill is that his name hmm. the the uh, guy who directed the sting and yeah um, yeah george roy hill yeah yeah and butch cassidy and the sundance kid 
And he initially was supposed to be the director. You know, William Goldman obviously wrote uh, Butch Cassidy, and and so they knew each other there, and that was the plan. But uh, George Roy Hill would not shoot one of the most famous scenes in the film that 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 um that in the book is even more disturbing and in the original screenplay is even more disturbing. And, and Hill said, no, I can't, I can't do that. I don't want to do it. I want to leave it out of the film. And Goldman protested and basically said like, no, you ha- we ha- it has to be in there. That scene has to be in there. Did, did he feel like it was a matter of propriety because he was yeah. kind of old fashioned probably? Yeah. But also it was, it was much more gory initially um, rather than the scene being played out with a sledgehammer was played out with an ax right. in, in both the book and the original screenplay. And um, he thought that was inappropriate. Ultimately, weirdly Reiner who says, well, I'll just direct it then also makes the choice not to put that in the film. Um, but Goldman later said he thought Reiner made the correct choice. And so did Kathy Bates, who was against it. Everyone was against changing it. You know, Kathy Bates, William Goldman really wanted to have the ax scene in there, <laughs> but um, uh Ultimately, yeah. I think it's better in some ways, you know. Yeah, definitely. Mm-hmm. I agree. Yeah. Yes. But anyway, so this so this author is stuck in this little cabin with his number one fan, and he has killed off this character because he doesn't want to write the character anymore. And she, being such a huge fan of this character, tries to force him into reviving the character, and that's the main thrust of the dra- of the drama. Um, from his backstory and his life is that, you know, he's being forced to kind of re-enter this, you know, world that he doesn't want to professionally anymore. And then juxtaposing that with this very immediate danger of he's being held captive, you know, by a stalker essentially. And there's one thing that bugs me quite a bit about this. I mean, I love this film, but I just want to say it up front here while we're talking about it, that character's name happens to be misery and and that has always driven me nuts and uh, to hear you say because because it's like it's almost too um on the nose because yeah because he's he's suffering in misery and he obviously feels misery of being trapped not only in his writing career but in this house and so forth and so the the fact that the character's name is misery uh, that even like in terms of within this world this writer um that that's like a melodramatic character name if i ever heard one but also it also kind of (laughs) bugs me as i hear you talking about this josh and describing like more insight for me um that so it's are we to understand then that Stephen King because I, I have a little bit of a hard time feeling sorry for him about this but that, that he was like uh, kind of annoyed that he had to continue being a horror writer uh, of like horror novels with all the you know millions he was making so he was sick of that and and we're supposed to feel bad about that because like that bugs me too <laughs> I don't know if it was I don't I don't know if it was that he didn't want to be a horror writer. Um, probably. I know like when he, he did a, like some crime stuff more recently and he, he's, he's talked about how he felt pressure to kind of put something supernatural or scarier into them. But he was like, I just wanted to do a suspense crime film. I didn't want to do anything else, you know, but people have this expectation of his work and then it's poorly received by his fans when he doesn't put that stuff in there. Some oftentimes, you know, he's, obviously had successes with stand by me and Shawshank and the green mile um, have less of that, but 
I don't know. I mean, I I think with, with Richard Bachman, I think we saw even if I'm not mistaken, even harder stuff. Like, if isn't that true? Weren't the Bachman books even more kind of just mean spirited and angry? And he was using that pseudonym to kind of hide behind his really kind of angry work. You know, I don't know. I think maybe it's just that he had a very specific thing that he felt was expected of him and he wanted to be more broad. I, I thought the running man was one of the Bachman. Mm-hmm. That's true. It is. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's interesting. It is fascinating. And I love how like autobiographical it is. That's pretty cool. What about, so at the beginning here, kind of at the top, thank you for setting up the premise and everything, Josh. I wonder if you guys would mind um, telling telling your favorite memory of watching this. I assume we've all seen this multiple times. I'll just tell you mine real quick because I think, you know, a couple of us have this in common. Our alma mater, uh, where we attended a university, as, as they say. Um, so, so at our place where we went to school, they had this library and they had a bunch of films and uh, one day I had, I think I had class and, but I decided not to go to class because I saw misery on the shelves and I'm like, I, Oh, I, I haven't seen that movie in a while and I love that movie. And so I just took that afternoon and just basically played hooky as they say. And I was, <laughs> I just sat, they had these little viewing rooms in the library and I sat there on little TV in a viewing room at uh, Utah Valley university now it's called and i watched misery one afternoon and i was absolutely filled with delight like the whole time and and in you know the moments i was cringing and wiggling in my seat and squirming and just like i i had so much fun it was pure joy at the cinema while watching this film and it just i, I you know how often really I feel like in a way that cinephiles like us and especially horror fans are kind of like heroin addicts in that we're trying to always chase that first high that we had. We're always trying to capture that again. And it's so rare though, when you really have like true joy throughout in a, in a filmic experience. And that's what I had when I watched uh, misery that one time in the Utah Valley university uh, library. It's just amazing. Anyway, that, now, that was mine. Jay, are you saying heroin addict like the drug that you inject into your veins and get extremely addicted? Or are you talking about like in storytelling, we're chasing and projecting onto the heroin like we yeah. want <laughs> to be the hero because of delusions of grandeur. We feel small. Well we're done. like, you know, our lives are mundane and oppressive <laughs> and totally Sometimes we just feel like, what is the point? And we use these movies for escapism, you know, fall, you know, we're addicted to the heroin story. Right. Which one were you referring to? Uh, the former. I'm referring to the drug, actually, oh, in, in this okay. case. He wants to be Wonder Woman. What, come on. I, I do. In, in fact, I, I used to buy Wonder Woman under Ruth, and that's a true story. But anyway, do you guys have a favorite memory of uh, seeing this or an association with it? Anything on a personal level? You could share on a personal level. I just want to say this is a very Matroid kind of question to ask on a podcast. I don't know. That's it's just striking. <laughs> I've never heard you say anything like this ever on a podcast. Um, I like it though. That's fine. Um, I this is one of those movies that I watched a hundred thousand times as a kid. We had the VHS tape, and I just would watch this anytime. I there was some downtime. 
it was like one of the 10 movies I would put in to watch. I just, I just love this one. For me, the thing that always stood out was, and it works on me almost every time is Kathy Bates performance and the slow reveal of who she is. And you, she has these emotional breaks three or four times throughout the film before it goes, you know, full, full scary. Mm -hmm. And they're, they're so well done on her behalf and they take you off guard and they're so unexpected and unsettling. And it's really her. She's the reason that those moments work, I think. And, you know, there's some of that has to do with, obviously there's the storytelling and the, the tension that's created and everything and the other performer, but it's just her face and, her voice and you're like what like it doesn't seem like it should be coming from this character and in fact i mean i'm glad you mentioned her right up front i mean she won the oscar for best actress in a leading role and so this is one example here where the academy awards celebrated a horror film or at least this performance in a horror film i mean it is that good yes absolute oscar performance over and, julia roberts and pretty woman even which was like one of the biggest movies that year or that decade that's fantastic yeah and she also won the golden globe too for that i see looking over it but man yeah that performance i mean that scared everybody right i mean ever since that even when i saw her recently as uh joe in the office i mean uh, she will always be <laughs> she she will always be scary to me because of her Annie Wilkes performance. And I, I still say of everything I've ever seen her in, I still think it's her best role. I agree. I mean, just the way she would go from that sort of, um, you know, dirty, you dirty bird type of thing, you know, just sort of like a <laughs> sort of a, a, a very sort of innocent down home uh, and just go completely mental. Um, you know, like Josh was saying, it, it's, it's, it really, that's the part that's, that's what gets you. I mean, that's really what, what, where the movie hinges and she does pull it off wonderfully. I mean, and then, and then the most brutal scene in the movie, how sort of in control she seems, mm-hmm. you know, it just, it worked really well. Um, for me, I saw this on cable, you know, sorry, they can't all be exciting. Um, but it was funny. Um, uh, <laughs> Uh, but when, uh, Josh was saying, you know, he was like in third or fourth grade when the movie came out, I would had just turned 21. Um, and I was in college when the movie came out and I did not see it in the theater. I saw it, um, I guess a year later on, on cable, but same experience, you know, you, you, you just, it's just as it's building it, you just get more and more uncomfortable and, and it, um, I don't want to get too deep into spoilers, but there's another character here played by Richard Farnsworth um, who, you know, you sort of see him putting together what might have happened and, and, and what might be going on um, to, to the point that that that's almost like, you know, OK, th- this guy's going to and then and then sort of how that part of it winds up <laughs> you're just like, oh, no, you know, this this is this is, you know, you, you had a little bit of hope there. Um uh, and then it's just sort of taken away. I just, I, lo- I, I thought that was a really interesting thing too. And, and it, um, yeah, just the movie, uh, it, it, it was great. I mean, I really enjoyed it, mm-hmm. but yeah, I saw it on cable. It's, this is not one of my more interesting, uh, well, backstories. Still, thank you, old timer. I liked it. So, uh, what, what about you, uh, William, do you have a favorite memory of watching this? Uh, 
No, I don't. I don't remember when I first saw it. It, it seems in my mind. Um, I think all of us here can uh, of a we are of a certain age that we could relate to. Um, there might have been some movies uh, we owned. Obviously, we did. But uh, you know, going to the local rental movie rental place was totally within our our sphere of if not day to day like it happened every week if you wanted to see a movie mm-hmm. and you know you had to go rent it i remember for whatever reason i didn't get around to buying this but i remember renting it um yes. a few times i love and you. and i think it's one of those things where I was like i forgot i used to do that i forgot that it used to be a thing where it makes so much more sense to just buy it but for whatever reason maybe i hadn't made that connection that this is one of my favorite movies yeah, so I just kept renting it once a year, or, you know, I, I'm serious for like 10 years. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, and honestly, there might be some people listening to this me like, Whoa, are you guys nuts? Like, that sounds insane that anyone would do that. But I, I think I did that a lot. Yeah, uh, me too. Well, you're always but, with friends and nobody can ever decide on what to get. And so it's a movie like Misery where it's a, it's a surefire. Everyone's going to enjoy this. So it, it, it's that kind of movie yeah. for me where... Oh, this is a good recommendation. Like for sure, everyone will have a good time. And and right. when you're a kid, you have like two or three bucks for a rental, but you never have like fifteen or twenty or whatever it was to buy the to buy the film. Right. <laughs> right. When you're a kid, right. anyways. And when I was a kid, when I was a kid, it was ninety dollars to buy a video. So yeah, <laughs> that really sucked. Wow. Okay, so uh, yeah, my the first movie we bought eighty nine ninety five. Holy Moses! Can you imagine? <laughs> the movie was called Holy Moses. Dudley Moore, uh, Lorraine Newman, Holy Moses from 1980, $89.95. I loved it because that title, that film title, like fit. It almost sounded like it was either the name of the film or an exclamatory statement. So I just love that. Well, it would have been better if it was an exclamatory statement because the movie kind of sucked. <laughs> so that was a big risk to take. My kids will be yeah. like, are we going to buy uh Thor Ragnarok. I'm like, I don't know. We should try to get it on a red box or something first before we buy it. Yeah, well, maybe, maybe we might want to eat next week. So we'll, we'll wait and see. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So I want to, I want to float a theory on you guys here for misery. If you guys are ready for this. So my reading of it lately has been this. I feel like this film is a bizarre, but very apt riff on the Frankenstein story, Frankenstein's monster, because I feel like we have a creator here. Um, the James Conn character, he's the creator who is trying within this character, within this being of misery to capture humanity, you know, and to, um, present, you know, some sense of humanity within this character, but that ultimately backfires and ends up creating a monster in the Kathy Bates character. I mean, it, it is a monstrosity that happens. And, and because of his own creative powers, his, his genius, as it were, he uh, actually brings about this craziness, which is this fan. The genius brings about the craziness and she um, goes nuts and is a monster who wreaks havoc. What say you do, you, do you? Can you see that in there, or is that just too too much stretching? I like I liked that last part. That basically his genius yeah. is, has the possibility to 
bring upon his own destruction. That's kind of a cool. Right. That is pretty idea. cool. Yeah, I'm seeing it this time around, but okay. But then it's but then it's the monster wanting to not wanting him to do anything else. I thought that was the interesting part. You know, like you were saying, how he's now he's stuck. You know, now he's got to, it's almost like when you get the Bride of Frankenstein. Now he's got to make another one. <laughs> yes, right. exactly. It's funny. Yeah. Now, w- when you guys watch this film, I'm a huge fan of The Godfather. Is it hard for you not to see uh, Sonny Corleone Santino? <laughs> I saw this movie I mean, before The Godfather. Yeah, yeah, I did too. I, I had seen, obviously, I had seen The Godfather before this, but... Um, I, I always sort of think that whenever I see James Caan made watching Elf really interesting. Right. But yeah, it, it was kind of cool to, to see him doing something different. But it's funny how I never see him getting to that intensity. He does in, the, in this movie, he comes close, but never quite get into that Sonny Corleone intensity in a lot of his subsequent movies, which mm-hmm. I thought was uh, was interesting. And and I although I love him as an actor and I think his performance is great in this film, do you know who I wish would have been cast? And and actually when I go like many years like when I go a while and I haven't seen this movie, sometimes I misremember and think that this was the casting. Sometimes I think that his character is played by Roy Scheider. <laughs> Isn't, oh, wow, that's is, interesting. It's weird, yeah, right? Yeah, that would have been interesting. Yeah, I would he, love He to. was not the first choice. There were a lot yeah. of people said no. I, I just saw this. Kevin Klein said no. Michael Douglas, Harrison Ford, Dustin Hoffman, Robert De Niro, Al Pacino, Richard Dreyfus, Gene Hackman, Robert Redford all said no. Warren Beatty was intending to do it, but then he couldn't get off of Dick Tracy long enough to, to do it. Mm. So then they got... James Caan. So they went, okay, was, I, I know he was good. He was really good in the movie. I agree. I, and this is one of his, uh, I thought he was really good as well, but it's how did, how did he feel coming in saying, okay, who's 18th on the list? I right, yeah. got James Caan. It says, it says William Hurt said no twice. This says, <laughs> wow. Wow. That's, huh. that's really something. Which it's like, okay, well, because- we, we're at the bottom of the list. We've got James Conn and Bob Saget. Let's hope James Conn goes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So it, it it almost could have been Roy Scheider then at some point. Darn it. Yeah. I saw an interview, though, with Rob Reiner, and he was talking about how much he loved Conn in the role. And I'm sure a lot of these other guys would qualify for that, too. But he's like, Conn is known as such a physical guy. It what the It's made it extra torturous to see him tied down you know it's it's against against what you expect to see from him in a movie that's that's very true it's it's especially uh excruciating for him to not be able to to move and to be in this sort of situation and nothing he can do about it and you know they just barely you know misery was on broadway with um bruce willis and um what's her name from from roseanne that is getting all the oscar buzz this year uh oh oh, i know too I know who you mean. Um, I'm blanking on her name right now. But I know who I know who you're talking about. Yeah, dang I, it. I can't remember her name either. Lady the Bird, the, the sister or whatever. Yeah, yeah, I can't remember. Yeah, let me see. I'm blanking, but anyway, it's on Broadway now. Maybe it, it definitely was for the last couple of years. And and Reiner said the same thing about Bruce Willis. You know, he's like Bruce Willis is such a perfect candidate to play this role because he's an action star, and so to see him unable to move. 
it, it like it creates this psychological tension automatically, you know? Mm-hmm. Like right. That. Something that you might not get with a William Hurt right. or um, a Kevin Klein. Yeah, absolutely. So, or or uh, Richard Dreyfus. Laurie Metcalf, right? Laurie Metcalf, yes. Laurie Metcalf, yeah, there you go. Okay. Yeah, listeners were yelling at us, so I wanted to put sorry, it Sorry, listeners. <laughs> no, that's all right. Yeah. I, I like that concept. I like of uh, like casting against type or at least casting to like mess with the uh, viewer's expectations. I think that's brilliant. It's yeah. So, you know what's neat about this film as well to me I I appreciate I love films where you know the character uh, once again you've got a perishable predicament. I think this is to a lesser extent than other films where people are stuck in a situation, but I do think it applies where it's the horror scenario where it becomes, you know, the longer they're stuck in this situation, the deadlier it becomes. And and it, that's the case here because it escalates. And I think like any great horror film, this escalates as well. And um, Well, she's so unpredictable, mm-hmm. you know. I mean, that's like when, from the moment she says, I have a gun, I might put bullets in it. And then she walks out of the room like that's a perishable situation. Right. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> well said. That's right. So, uh, William, uh, you've been quiet. What say you, sir? Talk about misery. Well, uh, I also had those same notes of the roles turned down, but Bette Miller apparently also turned it down for any Wilkes. Oh, interesting. Um, I'm really glad she didn't do it. That would have sucked. Right. Uh, <laughs> she's quoted by saying she thought it was too violent, but later said she called herself stupid for turning it down um again you know I, I don't mean to be a broken record but i guess it's just just what is on my mind but the themes here there are lots of themes there's the obvious ones i think the secondary maybe even third tier themes which i'm curious because of something that josh had discussed with me um more in his world and i believe you know a little bit more relevant here is I think being in the public eye and has like never been more relevant. It's always been a thing always, but I think like technology has connected the human race in a way where I honestly believe um, how we socialize and interact with each other has shifted um, completely. And I think we could even notice any of us who have kids or around children, how they interact socially is way different than the way I did. And that's maybe every old person has ever you know when i was young we never even right we, you know whatever um but i feel like it's more prominent than than just the typical you know what what you would hear an old person say but my point is um you know it's that it's like uh I, as podcasters and filmmakers and anyone who creates creates anything that I, that they then which this is kind of key because some people create and and bury it or put it in a closet or they just never no one ever really sees it or knows but uh, a lot of people who create give it to the public give it to the world and so you've got these themes which is like is it yours anymore do when artists create their work you know and then they give it out is it still theirs or are they giving up certain um, under, is there an unspoken understanding that everyone else is going to do certain things with it, whether the creator wants it to or not, or whether it's intended or not. 
and also like and then if you become very big and i, I this is the last thing i'm gonna say because i know i go on no go is, ahead go ahead can you can you can you cater to your audience to any extent and still be creative creatively authentic meaning I mean, maybe it's not necessarily yes or no, but but these nuances of of how that works, and again, just like the the shining, like I said, I honed in on this idea of this uh, fear of you know not having any more good ideas, and then if you're someone who takes pride in trying to be able to create something, that's the worst case scenario. You're out of ideas uh, on any level, and here's another thing. But here's the thing: where you create something and it gets away from you you hate it you don't want anything to do with it you even decide you're going to kill it because it's yours but the public's like i don't think so and not only are we not going to let you kill it we're super critical and annoyed with everything that you continue to do to the point where we'll assassinate you um you know publicly uh for you know for whatever element that we don't agree with and i, I think even maybe like george lucas is a really good yes. example yes. for this sort of idea where I, I would you know it'd be really interesting to see if there was a point where he was like i'm starting to regret i ever even did star wars <laughs> Wait, I, I think many of us have already done like a hobbling george lucas figuratively in our minds with some of the things he's done <laughs> just, right. just saying but yeah right, I, but in his mind's like this is just what i wanted to do guys why are you guys freaking out and then and then i think he realized i i'm i believe i heard this quote where he's he said something like never try to redo something that you have done that have had that has so much impact like you're the the public will never accept it it will never let you you know basically try to recreate or add or take away from what they think it now is. It's the theirs now is what I'm saying. Mm -hmm. That's, that's profound. And I think that fits that analogy in that theme yeah. fits great with this film because yeah, the Annie Wilkes character, the, the misery character was hers and she, she uh, saw it as hers. And that's how we view like the star Wars properties. And I think that's also why um, in the Halloween fans, <laughs> Like I know Josh is one of those ravenous Halloween fans. Yeah. I, I think that's why maybe that's been a scary, you know, I think I, I'm not saying that it's been, it just seems like it's weird how popular that is and how beloved it is, but it almost seems like the horror filmmaking community has been, I mean, probably part of it's rights issues and so forth, right? Having permissions. I, I mean, there are probably lots of people who'd love to take a stab at that. But also, there is such a protected, precious feeling about that that maybe it's scary for some people. I don't know. I'm drifting yeah. a little bit. Josh well, is very I just, quiet. I guess the one question that I, I, I threw out there was, have you guys ever felt backlash as podcasters where something got away from you and or wasn't what you intended or maybe you just kind of said it one time or did something one time and didn't really think it was going to go anywhere and it just like exploded and you were desperately trying to ring it back or rein it back in but it, it got away from you kind of an idea i think jay has that like every week yeah that, that's <laughs> It's yeah, so funny right. you say that because actually, yeah, William, I thought that this seems like a very common experience for me. And, and, and honestly, 
and I'll, I'm going to be like, I'm going to level with everybody here. I'm, this is going to be a movie moments podcast, raw moment. I, I, I do feel like um, it, it's funny because when I saw The Village in 2004 and, and I just raved for two hours straight, I was on a date with my wife. Well, she's now my wife, but it was the week before we got married is when that came out and we were on a date. And and we t- I talked for two hours straight, talked her leg off about that movie, and I just thought the whole world would love that movie. And then it turned out that half the world hated The Village. They hated it, and it, it still breaks my heart that they hate it. But that, for the first time in my life, that is when I learned, I was like, well, I don't know what, 26 or something. That was the first time I learned that, hey, maybe the world doesn't necessarily agree with your opinions. <laughs> and, and and honestly, that was like the first time that that really happened to me where I was like, really? I can't understand it. And it's happened many times since, like with so many people hating Avatar and so forth. But the point I'm saying is, to answer your question, William, there have been things that I've said on podcasts that I thought were not controversial and that I thought would go over just fine because I thought that's how everybody else felt. And I would be like... Um, strongly corrected and, and and given some insight. So yeah, Josh is right. I've had a lot of enlightenment that way. It's happened to me. I mean, just just last just uh, the last episode, you're all you know for us uh, uh, killing of a sacred deer. Yeah, like you were all kind of happy with yourself. But oh, when you did that, well, I think it was Juan on the comments board is calling for an a ban of you ever doing that again on the show. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, see, for whatever reason, Juan has Juan has become one of my uh, biggest uh, trolling personalities, and, and he knows I love him, so maybe that's why he does it. But yeah, I was pretty proud of that whole killing of sacred deer thing. But I'm oh, sorry, Juan. I think the thing with Juan is he loves you and vehemently disagrees with everything you think. <laughs> <laughs> hey, what's that line that Michael Scott says about Toby in the office? I just hate everything that it is that you choose to be like he says something like that (laughs) that's how Juan feels about me I'm sorry Juan but I love you anyways um, back to misery Um, the death of the author thing so uh, William are you saying that um, once a creative work has been released then it is it is out of the bag and it is gone there is no way to capture that lightning again I mean it is it has gone to the possession of those who consume it. I've seen artists try to take it back. I've seen artists try to change it and tweak it. All of the above. But I am saying to a certain degree, you give up certain control and rights when you give it to the public only because look at what look at look at fandom. Look at what Comic-Con is. And all the rest of, of collecting um, or consuming. I think that even if an artist says, I don't care and I'm not interested in any of that, regardless, the reality is that there is a massive amount of people that will consume um, if for whatever reason, whether it's good or bad. See, even bad now. People now consume, look at the room and the, you know, um, <laughs> Troll 2. People will consume even bad things or you know, corky, less quality, good things. I, I don't, I don't want to like trash these things, but definitely these things that, 
you know, they're not masterpieces and they still consume them. They create events of them. They meet together. They talk about them. And I guess what I'm saying is whether you like it or not, it is out of your control to a certain extent. And then they start treating you like with, you know, whether the director goes to the, you know, 20 year anniversary of Troll 2 to sit on a panel and bask in the glory of all these people who love it because it's the worst, the best worst movie ever made. And he's just like, you know, I, this, this is breaking my heart. I, I legitimately tried to make the best movie I could. And now everyone's calling it the best worst movie ever made. Like he's ashamed and he's like, I'm not going there. And then an entire subset of humans are like, you know, up yours. Like we hate you. How dare you, you know? <laughs> so I guess what I'm saying is any scenario can, I, we could probably give an example, but I, I'm sure Joshua would have some insight, but I'm saying, yes, the, the theme, the idea that this guy would have never thought this writer in misery. Cause it, I believe this is all related to the themes of misery. And I think it, it, it hits a, a tone with me because I think these things come up in our, in our human experience a lot. Now. I mean, we've got, everyone has a blog, everyone has a YouTube channel, tons of people become and become popular, well-known. And I think, and then they become trolls. There's documentaries where then the people hate on them and some of them get depressed or commit suicide. These things are relevant in our communities, in our society, especially with teenagers. And I, I didn't wa- I wasn't trying to change the subject. I legitimately was saying I understand the themes on a base level, but I really feel like this movie is more relevant than ever. And I highly recommend anyone. I know this, I'm not trying to wrap up, but if you haven't seen this because you think it's dated or old, this is way relevant to me, mm-hmm. like way relevant. Yeah. So, Josh, can we use you as an example? Is that OK with you? With regard to what? Okay, so so uh, thank you. So so Josh here is a filmmaker, a filmmaker I admire, and um and tell me if you hate this, and I won't I won't go. I'm just curious about this, and maybe it is hard to get an answer because of the nature of of your film Clean Flicks. I I like that film Clean Flicks a lot, and it's about the edited movie industry, which it's it's about other things too. But but anyways, what's interesting to me about that, and what's awesome is in the uh, special features um uh, there's actually a, a clean flicks version of clean flicks which was that was that your idea whose idea was that because that's sheer brilliance i don't by the remember way. it was kind of a joke but but i thought it was interesting because i thought as we talked about the movie the primary audience who we thought would benefit from seeing the film might not watch it due to right um, and also who the who the film was about might not watch it due to some of the more uh, <laughs> upsetting content for them or, you know, for the sensitive audience. And so we want, yeah, yeah. we created a, a clean version of, but, but beyond that with clean flex, clean flex is really about this idea of who does art belong to, you know, mm-hmm. it's about this idea of, is it, you know, for the creators or is it for the audience? And I usually, and, you know, and, and honestly, in a lot of ways that come down on the side of the audience, I think what made clean flex troubling is that there was censorship involved you know, and so it's a very complex question. I think in the digital age, most audiences come down on it's the, it's the property of the audience, not the creator. You know, mm-hmm. and these these days in the in the remix, remash, mashup world we live in, look on YouTube. People don't care about who owns what copyrighted material. They do whatever they want with it. You know, right, right. So I think I think that's changing quickly. And going in that direction. Um, mm-hmm. So I think when we made the film, we were trying to not m- make our view 
points of view necessarily known. I think we tried to handle that debate mm-hmm. um, objectively. And I think I appreciate filmmakers like that, you know, like a Kubrick with the shining, he's not there to tell us what the movie means. He, in fact, if you interview him and ask him, he probably won't tell you what the movie means. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it means what it means to you. And I think we see that changing with, you know, I think there are filmmakers who are still holding on to this auteur theory. You know, I noticed with Jordan Peele, he has very specific things that he says his film is about. And I've seen fan theories that say, well, what about this? What about this? This is in there. Can I read it this way? And I, I've seen him react to it and just be like, I really like that, but no, that's not what it's about. And I don't, I don't like that. He's kind of saying, no, you can't read it that way because he doesn't have control over that anymore. It's now ours to mm-hmm. look at the way we want. That's scary when applied to misery, because now you see the dark side of that where, you know, they're saying, um, and, and, and you see it as you guys have mentioned with George Lucas's films, the star Wars, films. You, you see a situation with like, with the last Jedi where the audience is saying, no, you're wrong. We want it this way. Change it. And but, the, and Ryan Johnson's like, well, I didn't want to do that. I want to do this. Like, doesn't matter. It's not yours. You think you're a hired gun to deliver us the Star Wars movie we want. <laughs> so the difference, though, if and this is me once again thinking that, um, you know, I have this universal opinion that everyone will probably agree with and probably no one will agree with it, actually. But but it seems to me that the line in the sand is is the material released yet or not because with the Kathy Bates Annie Wilkes character in Misery and listeners this is why we're talking about this because it is relevant to the film with her character this is material that he was writing that is not released and so as the creator as the author when that new material is released that is him that that is his and he has that domain and the permission to say and then once it's out then you know they can take it and run with it now if he try to go back as William was saying and then like mess with something that had already been released and try to like uh, screw with it like George Lucas does then yeah you can like um, become Annie Wilkes about stuff but I think once it's released even though I haven't loved all the new Star Wars types of things I feel like I don't have a right to gripe about that because I'm not the creator but I think that's where the line is between I oh see I knew I knew so why well, tell me what phrasing is what's confusing what do you mean you don't have a right like describe what do you mean by that because i'm not the creator of of like um the next misery chapter like annie wilkes she wasn't the creator of the next misery book she needed to wait and see what the misery creator wrote and put out and then right, she but- was trying to alter what he actually released and i think that's where she was wrong obviously but- Correct me if yeah. I'm wrong. Your professional background is a film critic, and that's like judging everyone's art having never even done it. Right. But yeah, and that's fine. After it's out, after it's already released, then you can gripe all you want if you don't like oh. it. But I'm saying where she's wrong is trying to change it before the the creator of it actually gets it out there. Oh, that's I see the, what you're doing. That that's where it's wrong. Well, she does. She goes even further than that, where she um, makes him fix the. It's, it's he. She makes him fix it by writing another one. You know, right? That's that's the insane part. She's like, nope. Correct. I mean, I'm I not think that's yeah. how that ended. In the setting of this film, though, he was done. I believe the opening shots, like he does a ritual where once he finishes a novel, he like 
opens a smokes bottle a cigarette. Of, yeah. yeah, smokes a cigarette, and she even knew that. And I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but she sees that as he's on his way to deliver that it is done. It's sealed. You guys are actually mixing up a minor plot point, which is not a big deal, but the, the book was already released that he had already, he had already killed misery before he went. This was his next novel. He was writing up at, up Mm. at this lodge. And so, so she, she reads his new novel and is disgusted by the, foul language and says um no you're burning this you know and then she goes and she picks up his new book so his book comes out is released while he's under her care she goes and picks it up at the store and then brings it back and she's so excitedly reading it and she comes (laughs) in and gives giving him updates and then you know he's a dirty bird and uh (laughs) right right okay Okay. yeah well thanks for straightening me out on that i'm it's I haven't it's been a little bit since I've seen it, but that's okay. right. no, that's good. So, yeah. So, Josh, but did you so it sounded like you didn't know where I was coming from at first, but now you do. Is that why? Because I wanted to hear what you disagreed with about what um, I said. I don't know. I mean, I think it's weird because theoretically I disagree with you. But then when you look at it within the context of this movie, I do agree with you. And it's it's interesting because I guess that's the difference between theorizing about things and having mm-hmm. lived experience, right? Well, do you think that, uh, like, if you read Brian Johnson's script of the new Star Wars, for example, if you didn't like it as a fan, do you think that you would have the right to tell him, hey, I want you to change A, B, and C? Do you I think- would have no problem with giving him my notes. <laughs> I'd be <laughs> okay. like, this is what this is what I think you did wrong, you know. But but I but I but, you know that would be with the intent of trying to make it better. But I think that's altogether different than maybe it's not. But I think of it as different than chaining someone to a bed and force feed them. <laughs> Right. Knockout medication. <laughs> right. Well, I think it's a metaphor for that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. I mean, if he were no, coerced. Yeah, fandom. yeah she, she, he is captive to his own creation. I, right. I mean, that's, it's mm-hmm. an interesting thing. I mean, it's, it's very complicated, mm-hmm. but I think what, I think what I'm realizing as we have this discussion, I don't have a set fast point of view. And part of that was, I was, I was attempting to not have a f- set fast point of view when we made clean flicks. Um, but I think, I really realize I am against it in practice. I think theoretically, I like the idea that, you know, once so, once someone puts out something into the ether, they can't control, you know, we talked about this all the time with clean flicks. If I'm sitting in a movie theater watching Martin Scorsese's film, he cannot control whether or not I get up and go to the bathroom or get some popcorn or talk to the person next to me or look at my phone or, you know, close my eyes for a minute. I'm not, they cannot control the way I'm receiving their Mm -hmm. art it's my it's my choice how i'm going to view it now when you put that into the reality of a clean flick situation where for those who don't know you know uh, conservative audiences were choosing to edit out sex and violence and and nudity and swear words out of hollywood films and then resell those to their uh, to you know the market that desired those things um then i'm against that actually immediately and then and i think it's the you know, there's the censorship element to it, but then you also talk about the reality of this misery thing. I'm against, I'm against what she's doing. Obviously she's forcing him to, to change his work. And it is his, you know, and that, and that's it. I, I definitely side with Paul Sheldon in this situation. So I don't know. It's a complex mm-hmm. issue. And I think the theory is sometimes different than practice. 
Mm-hmm. So do you feel like, um, do you feel like that when Stephen King wrote this and, you know, that translates to the movie too, do you feel like that, that the, the actual film is hung on this debate? Do you think it hangs on this debate? Is this the spine of the movie? Everybody. I hope so. Cause we've been talking about it for a really long time. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I mean, I do feel like it's a very important theme and I, William, I believe you're the one who brought it up. So props for that. But is that what you think, William? Is it the, the spine I, of the debate? I am just, look, I don't know Stephen King. Uh, I, I would bet uh, any amount of money confidently that if I was to be in a room with him and if I was to ask him that it, it is 100%, not even 90, maybe 95, somewhere between 95 and 100%, the literal backbone theme of this that sparked his idea, that absolutely got him excited to write it, the whole thing that he responds to. If he was to say anything but yes, pretty pretty much, I would be very surprised. But that's me projecting. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, that's what I was looking for. Your projection. <laughs> right. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Okay, Dave, what what else you got to say about misery before we start to wrap up? We're good. It's about uh, I that think time. it's all been said. I got to be honest with you. I don't have much to add. <laughs> um, I think everything's been covered. Uh, yeah. Okay. Um, so a little, uh, I got some weird trivia here. I'll just throw out. It's pretty sad actually, but um, so Richard Farnsworth in this, uh, you all remember that he was uh he played Alvin Strait in The Straight Story, a film from 1999. Little weird, this is even a, a farther out trivia. That's the first <laughs> film I ever wrote a movie review for. Oh, really? Yeah, and it's embarrassing. Anyways, um, but, but yeah, that was directed by David Lynch. Very bizarre. Anyway, Richard Farnsworth, the actor, he... Uh, Sheriff. Right, yeah, he's in the movie, yes, thank you. He... um. He had cancer, and so he decided he didn't want to go out that way, and so he committed suicide uh, by gunshot. And I thought that was just a horrifying end to his life. I thought it was really sad. But anytime, any, I can't, for whatever reason, anytime I see him or read his name, I can't separate that fact from his life about that. So, you know, that's another little dark part of this movie. When I see it, I think of that. Anyways. That's sad. Yeah. So, yeah, definitely. sorry to be a giant downer. So, let, let's wrap up then, I guess, with our final thoughts and um, everything. So, let's start with uh, Dr. Shock. Tell us your final thoughts and rating on Misery. Final thoughts on this. Um, again, it's it's Kathy Bates, um, I think, who, who makes this. Uh, I would give it, uh, I'd give it probably a 9 out of 10, and I think it's a buy. Mm-hmm. Okay. Is this, is there a reason it's not a 10 out of 10? I'm just curious. I only give tens to movies. I've said this before that I have a list of favorites and I will only give tens to any movie that is on that list of my all time favorites of all genres. Okay. Um, and misery is not on that list. That's the only reason why I wouldn't, but it's a buy. It's one I think that you'll watch over. Uh, and over again, and um, yeah, it, it's definitely worth owning. But that's the only thing I'll give it ten to. The Shining is on that list, 
Um, misery is not. So, Dave, don't be mad at me because I know it's almost 2 a.m. for you. Is there a reason? It's 2 a.m. and I put no thought into these numbers. <laughs> I hate number giving number reviews and everything. I've said that before. I don't do it on the blog for that specific <laughs> damn reason. <laughs> Leave me alone. It's a nine. <laughs> I was... You don't have to answer. I was just going to ask why it wasn't a 9.5, but that's okay. I mean, I just... It's a 9.5. Now, get off my back. 9.5 for misery. Get off my damn back. I love it. Great. That was a great rating. Okay. What about you, William? And we better like your rating, huh, Josh? Or there's going to be trouble. Just kidding. (laughs) Right. Well, I did just add one, uh, I thought, fascinating trivia where it's... uh, we're talking about how the two leads had different acting methods. Is it is it con? Do you say James Con? Is it con or can? I think we say con. Con, con right? We have been con, yeah. <laughs> right. It's con. And um, so you know, James Con believed is little rehearsals possible, and Kathy Bates with uh, her theater background uh, was used to you know doing it over and over again. You know, being prepared for opening night, but uh they kind of hit head to head anyway. So it was getting, becoming a problem. And, and I think this is just such an interesting and so fascinating to show someone so good at their craft with Rob Reiner told her to use that frustration towards her performance, (laughs) (laughs) which is like, yes, dude, that I I don't know (laughs) if I would have thought to do that. It's just so brilliant to be like, I can tell you're frustrated. Use it. (laughs) <laughs> nice. um, anyway so um i you know i really i was trying to take the question and the the concept of rating serious but i i really feel similar to dr shock where i don't know why i had it at a nine and why like you could have challenged me at the same time and i i probably don't feel like i've earned the right to freak out or you know backlash like they like dr shock did but he's you know this is his home he you know he needs to defend himself i i respect that but <laughs> i feel like maybe i'm more defensive um hmm. it is really good i just felt i just put a nine there it's like the shining is so obvious a 10 and if that's what i'm holding a 10 to then i guess this is a nine <laughs> Okay. That's my argument. I do, I go I go back to my nine. I'm with William. That's the same thing I thought. <laughs> okay, is it a is it a buy? It's an absolute buy and must see. Nine is very high, gentlemen. Right, right. Well, I have yeah. a confession, and Dave's gonna kill me. As I was thinking, I'm like, as we were leading up to this, and before Dave ever said anything, I'm like, okay, where is this for me? And the first thing that popped in my head was a nine. Okay, and that's the truth. But, but wait, that's, that's why I was asking you, Dave, because I'm like, then I started asking myself, okay, but why isn't it a 10? Like, how is this not a 10? It's an incredible film. And when I described my joy of cinema that I had when I saw it at that time in the library, honest to goodness, I'm like, I can't come up with it. But then hearing... Wriggling, tingling... (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, it was affecting me on a visceral level, and that's incredible. And so, you know, when I asked about that, that's that's what I was looking for. And then William said, okay, but if if The Shining is a 10, which is a masterpiece, by the way, then, okay, it's like, 
okay, yeah, this isn't as masterful as The Shining. So, um, but it's it's just hard. And I agree with you, Dave, ultimately, because num these numbers that we do, <laughs> it is ridiculous, right? Because whenever we do another number, like another one that we've reviewed on, a, like on the uh, weekly horror movie, the weekly mm -hmm. horror podcast that we used to do. Yeah. And I got to do another number one it's, it, and I do a different number. There's no reason to for it. I could say the exact same thing on both shows and I can come up with a different number. It's just <laughs> kind of the way it goes, you know? I know. And it's really hard because like, because right now tonight we're kind of comparing in a way, like inadvertently, we're comparing like The Shining and Misery because we was rated them back to back. But like if you take like our ratings against on like two shows ago or something, it's like, that's kind of weird how that lines up. And people do that with my ratings all the time, by the way. But anyways, so I mean, since we just rated The Shining and it was a 10, I I'm going to have to go, I'm going to have to go 9.5 on this and <laughs> 9.5 out of 10. It's a must see. <laughs> and I'm saying bye, misery. I think it's incredible. Okay, Josh, bring it home. Well, as I've mentioned, I prefer this to The Shining in terms of Stephen King adaptations. Um, for me, a 10 is a movie that's as good as it can be. You know, it perfectly fulfills the measure of its creation. I think this movie <laughs> is the best misery that we're going to see. I don't think that there's a lot of room for improvement. I don't watch the movie and say, you know, it's really lacking in this area. Or if someone with better, with more craft came to the table than Rob Reiner. We might get this. I don't see that here. I think it's, it's a perfect film in so much as, you know, it's telling the story that it's telling and set in the place that it's set with the actors that it has, you know, and I think it's, it, it pulls it off perfectly. So it's a 10 out of 10 for me. I love the, the setting of the film. We haven't talked about that too much, but you know, we are talking about Stephen King in the winter. I love, um, how trapped he is and not only he is physically trapped at the beginning, we have a storm, we have a car crash, we have the snowbank, all of that's real. But then Annie continues to use that against him. Even when it's not real, the, the road to the hospital is closed. The, the phone lines are down. I love the isolation that occurs in this film and the, the fact that he has no idea whether it's true or not. And the audience, we don't, we disbelieve her, but we're not positive, you know, at some points. And there's this moment where he's talking about how lucky he is that she found him. And at the moment that this is revealed, she's shaving his neck with a straight razor. <laughs> and she says, I was actually kind of following you. <laughs> you're like oh my god yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like, he's in the worst possible situation to have someone reveal that and have to be able to react in a cool way, you know, and that's really the strength of James Conn's performance is trying to figure out how can he react in a way that's not going to get him killed throughout the film. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I, we've, we talked a lot about Kathy Bates. I think she's mind blowing, but I think he's really good too. Yes. And it's shot by Barry Sonnefeld who would go on to direct movies. I love like get shorty. Um, but he also, you know, he had, been the Coen brothers cinematographer for many years. He did raising Arizona and blood simple and Miller's crossing. And he had just shot when Harry met Sally for Rob Reiner previous to this. So he's a really talented cinematographer uh, for sure. 
And I thought he did a great job here. Again, very limited space and uh, you know, very small, tightly enclosed location. But Winter plays a predominant role in this, just as it does in The Shining, um, and in a slightly different way, which is which is fun for me. So I love Winter movies. This is a great one, um, and this is one that I recommend people check out. Sitting around the fire with their cup of cocoa or tea or whatever, and enjoy your winter. <laughs> I love it, and I yeah I I love the theme of of these these episodes, and I'm excited for the second part too because yeah this is perfect, Josh right for if people ever get snowed in, uh, you know this would be a fun episode to revisit if like there's tons of snow outside you're getting a blizzard and you just gotta hunker down you can watch these movies yeah. and and I hope absolutely maybe listen to us argue about these things and uh just drink some hot cocoa. Right, William? That's correct. I think, Josh, did you take a sip of your hot cocoa or tea as you delivered that line? I heard a gulp. <laughs> that was awesome. Amazing. Gulp. That was amazing. I do have some tea here. <laughs> okay. Before we wrap up episode 138 here, because it's, um, like we said, 2 a.m. for our friend, Dr. Shock. Just want to say uh, real quick, I want to give a quick shout out and thanks to the gray man, Greg in Ohio. He uh, recently went to a poster sale at his local theater, and he mailed three posters to me, and I just wanted to thank him publicly for this. He sent, he sent me Gods of Egypt poster, which I've defended on many occasions. He sent me a Cabin in the Woods poster, and he also sent the uh, number one horror film of 2015, No Escape poster. <laughs> so I just wanted to thank the gray man for sending the posters. Really appreciate Suck that. Up. <laughs> <laughs> no, the gray man's awesome. Uh, yeah, he doesn't make fun of me all the time like uh, like Juan. A- anyways, thank you for that. And um, I'm grateful that everyone tuned in for this episode, episode 138 of Horror Movie Podcast. We want to thank our good friend here, William Rowan Jr. of the Movie Moments Podcast and the Sci-Fi Podcast. Tell them once again where they can listen to your shows, William. Yeah, so go to moviemomentspodcast.com and that's where uh, by the time you hear this, there's be, you know, we have uh, episodes on The Thing, John Carpenter's The Thing, 1982. We've got 28 Days Later. That's And, and The Thing is uh, with Josh and 28 Days Later episode is with Jason here and we've got The Burbs and I hope to have, again, I'm, I'm not just saying this, uh, Dr. Shock is going to guess as soon as we can schedule it. And yeah. so, you know, all your horror needs are there. There, even though it's not a horror podcast per se, but we just take one movie, pick one mo- moment from that movie separately, and and we just talk about why that one moment stood out to us, whether it was you know the most meaningful or personal or, or whatever it was. Um, anyway, that yeah, so it's a it's a it's an official podcast on the network here, mm-hmm. the sister podcast to the show. So uh, be a lot of familiar voices because uh, there's also you know I've got the Wrath of Khan with Matroid for the sci-fi podcast, mm-hmm. which you can also hear me on the sci-fi podcast.com which is all things science fiction um, and if you're on twitter if you're if you're doing twitter for the movie moments podcast it's just on twitter at movie moments pod 
So nice. you can uh, get a hold of me there too. By the way, if you're scheduling Dave, he really enjoys being on your podcast at like 11 p.m. our time, midnight our time. That that's when he yeah. he shines. And 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 what you'll say is you'll you'll say we'll wrap it up real quick and then we'll <laughs> go for three hours. <laughs> I literally do the opposite of all those things. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love it. I love it. Okay. All right, Dave, tell the listeners where they can find all of your hard and dedicated work because you are almost to the end of your challenge. I have been almost to the end of my challenge for a while now. Uh, but yes, I am. I'm closing in on the end um, and I'm scheduling it out to the point that, no, I, I don't know exactly when it's going to end. It's going to end in the very near future, probably within a month. Yeah, that'll be, I'll hit the 2,500 uh, over at DVDinfatuation.com. Uh, you can follow it on my Twitter account at DVDinfatuation. Uh, I do have a Facebook account as well. And what is that other thing? Instagram. I have, uh, I'm on Instagram. And as we, as um, you know, we figured out, I've misspelled my name. I'm DCO Shock, uh, HMP on uh, Letterboxd. And if you want to go over there, I have a list I'm putting together of all the movies that I'm still watching for 2017. And I'm going to add to that regularly. And of course, the other podcast, the Universal Monsters cast, the uh, We Deal in Lead podcast as well. And um, that's pretty much it. And for subscribers of the patron feed for the Movie Podcast Network, we just released the special features of the Best Picture Podcast. It was the second episode that Dave and I recorded together when we covered the films of 1952. Interesting. Yep. So good. I was glad you held on to those. I was because I, I, I didn't know if you if you had or not because that was a Hell while yeah. ago now. Hell yeah! It's good I stuff. wish you guys would just keep making that. Like you don't have to do one every week. Just whenever you like. Well, here's what you could do: do the present year, do the current year, one episode a year of the year we're on, mm-hmm. and then maybe one other time during the year, at the six month mark, do a do a back catalog year. That's a great idea. So we'll have to live. I have no problem with that. Yeah, we we should. Thank you, Josh. That's really nice. Maybe, maybe we will. Episodes like it's seriously it's some of my favorite podcasting. That's nice. That's a huge compliment, Josh. Thank you. Okay, and um, what about you, Wolfman? Tell the listeners where they can find your work. You can find me at UniversalMonstersCast.com, and you can find me. I guess I was recently on Movie Moments podcast. Definitely check out those episodes. That was a lot of fun. <laughs> And uh, social media at Icarus Arts. You can find me on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and Letterboxd. And I am trying to watch one thing a day right now. Not necessarily always a whole movie, but I'm hoping to watch one, have one cinematic experience every day this year. That's my goal. So we'll see how it goes. Oh, I like it. Um, and I just wanted to give an additional shout out to Peter Strain, who designed uh, the HMP Icon shirt. If you go to teespring.com slash stores slash horror movie cast, you can see all of the t-shirts that are available. I'd also recommend going to Peter Strain's Etsy page. In his shop, you can buy his original artwork, the screen prints. It's beautiful, beautiful art. And he even has one of The Shining. So uh, go and check that out at Peter Strange Shop on Etsy. All right. And I just have one little plug. Check out Movie Podcast Weekly. You can frequently hear William Rowan Jr. over there uh, straightening us out. And it's the clown car of movie podcasting. So we'd love to have you there. With the way that Andy gives ratings over there, you're going to sit here and get on me for 9 to 9.5? When this guy rates movies he hasn't even freaking seen... 
I hope you're recording this and you put this at the end of the show. Uh, I'm totally. I, I might even say uh, put it on movie podcast as well. <laughs> and we hope you know by now that unless you're one, we love your comments. I'm just playing one. For real though, you deserve that a little bit. We do love everybody's comments, including Juan's. And so please get involved in the horror movie podcast community. You can comment in the show notes for this episode or email us at horrormoviepodcast at gmail.com. You can also call and leave us a voicemail at 801-382-8789. You can find all our episodes, including the weekly horror movie podcast and horror metropolis at our website, horrormoviepodcast.com. Please subscribe free in iTunes and leave us a review if you don't mind. You can also follow us on Twitter at HorrorMovieCast, also on Instagram. I want to thank Fred Ingram for the use of his music for our Horror Movie Podcast theme song. You can find more of Fred's music at FrederickIngram.com. And we also want to thank Hagen Breitenbach for his classical reworking of Fred's original theme. You can find more of Hagen's original work at KaganBreitenbach.com. We'll have both of those linked in the show notes for this episode. And I think that's it for episode 138. Thank you for listening and join us again Friday after next for Horror Movie Podcast, where we're dead serious about horror movies. <laughs> <laughs>